BFFT. From the Pac West Center in downtown Portland, presented by High Caliber Millwrights, here's John Canzano with the bald faced truth. Well, I'm back in the seat. I'm back in the saddle. We got a lot to talk about. I have a lot to catch up on on today's show. I'm going to come right out of the gates and I'm going to throw caution to the wind and I'm going to ignore, you know what, you know, when you go get a physical. Maybe get a physical before, if you're training to do like a marathon or something, not that I've done that, but if you're training to do a marathon, you may go get a physical and the doctor will say, look, make sure you hydrate, make sure you have proper training, don't overdo it, right? That's what they tell you right out of the gates, or you're starting a new uh, workout regimen, don't overdo it. People always say that. I'm going to overdo it right off the top of the show today. We're going to talk about all the things we need to get caught up on, a lot going on in the world of sports, so to speak, bowl games, transfer portal, changing rules in the NIL space, plus, uh, you know, so much uh, coming down the pipeline here in the next few days as the Pac-12 Conference prepares for an Oregon Ducks bowl game in San Diego. We'll visit there live today uh, on the show, and we'll go to Pasadena as Utah is preparing for the Rose Bowl. Plus, we'll talk about the future of sports in the Pac-12 Conference and uh, even next football season. I'm already excited about next football season, in part because what the Pac-12 did in the last couple of weeks is cement itself as nothing less than relevant and interesting moving into 2023. And there are a lot of people talking about the expanded playoff and what that will mean for college football, and that's all great. And the Pac-12 and some other conferences will get to participate in ways that they haven't participated in recent years with the invitational tournament that is currently going on the four-team invitational uh we'll get a 12-team expanded playoff uh on the horizon but uh we'll talk a little bit about what the pac-12 has done because if you look at the quarterbacks that are going to be in this conference in the next year in the next 12 months we will be seeing michael Penix jr back at washington the reigning heisman trophy winner uh, will be at USC and Caleb Williams. Bo Nix is saying he's coming back to Oregon. He announced that while I was out. That's a big uh, a big get for Dan Lanning. Uh, you've got uh, the Oregon State landing, I think, the transfer splash of the offseason uh, so far in the Pac-12 conference, getting uh, DJ, I'm going to try this, Uyanga Lele. How'd I do there, Stephen? I mean, I think I, I think he did pretty good. Peter's really good at it. I, I we Angalele. I will say that I'm not an expert either, so I'm excited to hear the actual pronunciation and try to learn it. So go. And his, P- Peter's good at it. Give let Peter give a shot at it. Peter, you want to take a crack at DJ Uyangalele? Yeah, the the key is speed. If you just whip through it confidently, DJ Uyangalele. All right, we're gonna we're gonna talk to Big Dave too this week. His dad's coming on the show. I've been messaging with him ever since the announcement uh, went public. He's going to have one son playing uh, edge rusher at Oregon, another son playing quarterbacks, presumably, at Oregon State. Big Dave's got a story to tell about parenting. He's a big personality. He's a big dude. He uh, weighs about 370 pounds. He's 6'4". He was a bodyguard for Rihanna, Chris Brown, um, Meek Mill, Mill, some other people that uh, I don't even know what they do, but he was a bodyguard in Hollywood for the stars and for a lot of musicians as well. And he has also produced uh, now two sons that will play 
in the Civil War football rivalry on opposite sides of the football. And I'll ask him, like, point blank, like, how much did the fact that his older uh, son was in the portal, how much did the factor that his younger son was going to the University of Oregon uh, weigh in the decision for DJ to pick Oregon State out of the portal? So look at the quarterbacks. Look at the quarterbacks in the Pac-12. It's going to be Bo Nix. It's going to be Michael Penix Jr. It's going to be Caleb Williams. It's going to be... Uh, Lele at, at Oregon State. It's going to be, um, you know, possibly Cam Rising coming back at Utah. Josh Newman of Salt Lake Tribune is going to join us this hour from Pasadena as Utah is getting ready for the Rose Bowl to talk about the possibility of Cam Rising coming back for Utah. And, oh, by the way, you've got Jane Delora still at Arizona, and you've got some interesting pieces, you know, that are popping up across the conference, like at co- places like Colorado. Uh, where Deion Sanders' son is coming to play. And I think this conference is more relevant, more interesting, more exciting than ever. And we'll talk about it all week long. And by the way, Kenny Dillingham, Arizona State coach, on Friday's show in Hour 1. So if you are somebody who wants to hear all about the Pac-12, hear what happened to Dillingham and his departure at Oregon, did he mail it in? Was his mind on Arizona State and not the Civil War game that he was coaching? We'll talk about all that stuff with Kenny Dillingham on Friday, but this conference has given us a lot to talk about that has to do with the football. And we have spent months and months and months on media rights and television and can this conference matter and who's leaving and the defection of USC and UCLA in 2024. And now we are focused instead on the football, which I think is a huge win for the Pac-12 and the place you want to be if you're George Klyovkov, the commissioner of this conference, you know, who I think has made some mistakes and I think is trying to rectify those mistakes in this, media, this round of media rights negotiations. And we're going to find out pretty soon what happens there. But among the things we need to catch up on are let's just look at the formation of the Pac-12 conference as we look at next season. Yeah, that's right. Oregon's still got a game to play. They're going to play in the Holiday Bowl. You know, Utah's going to play in the Rose Bowl. USC's still got to play their bowl game. Washington's got to play their game. So we're looking at all this, and I'm also going, you know what? This is going to be kind of interesting to see what happens in 2023. Who's the favorite in 2023, guys? If you have to pick the favorite to win the Pac-12, who's going to be the favorite? And I'm going to, I'm going to offer a caveat. Like you, get, you have to rank them like 1, 2, 3, 4, 5, all the way to 12 when you turn in your ballot as a media member on, on Media Day. I think there's going to be a lot of different answers for who is number one in this conference next season. It's not like a one-team or a two-team race, I think. I think you can make an argument for Utah, of course, a defending champion. And like Omar and the Wire tells you, uh, you know, if you're going you're gonna to come at the king, you best not miss. Like Utah, you better, you better kill the king. you got to knock Utah out of there first. If Cam Rising's coming back, i got to think they are among the favorites, if not the favorite. you got Caleb Williams in USC, and everybody will say, hey, they're going to win 10-plus games next season. They'll be better. You've got Oregon and Bo Nix coming back for – an encore performance, they'll get some votes. They'll definitely be voted in the top three or four in the conference, and they'll get some first-place votes. Then you've got Oregon State, who suddenly looks formidable. Don't sleep on the Beavers, because, uh, you know, Jonathan Smith looks like he has a quarterback finally. And then you got Michael Penix Jr. in Washington. And Washington might have been playing the best football of anybody down the stretch in the Pac-12. Like, and nobody wanted to play Washington the last two weeks of the season. They were beating anybody and everybody, and Michael Penix Jr. is back. So, guys, who's your pick for the way too early? 
Who's going to win the Pac-12 in 2023? Yeah, way too early. I would go with USC, and that's because I know Caleb Williams is going to be back. If Cam Rising came back and I was 100% sure that he's coming back, I think I might go Utah. But with let's, that- let's assume he's coming back. Let's just say Josh Newman's going to tell us at 3.30 what yes. he thinks. Well, let's assume Rising's coming back. If How do you see it? If Rising's back, I have to go with Utah. You know, back-to-back champions, and he's made the plays in the Pac-12 title game that you know has won ball games for him. And Kyle Whittingham has proven that he is maybe the best coach in the conference, even when people aren't expecting anything out of them. They go in and they dominate USC. I would go Utah as my early number one pick. Let's. Uh... Go to Peter Sampson on this. What do you think? Yeah, man, am I crazy that I'm gonna look down to Corvallis? Can we get no, you're one, not. can we get one more year of improvement under Jonathan Smith? And, and look, DJU, he he showed that maybe he wasn't that dude that everyone thought he was going to be when he replaced Trevor Lawrence. But man, we've seen some moments from him, and I think you know Smith, a former quarterback. I've got a sneaky feeling the defense is going to stay solid. They finally got that quarterback. This is a system where Ben Goldbrinson was seven and. One, no disrespect. I think this is going to be the Beavs year next year. Beavs are uh, not a wrong answer in this question because I think, you know, if you give them a quarterback this season, and it, and look, all due respect to Ben Gulbrinson, who just got better and better and better and, mm-hmm. you know, went 7-1 and one as a starter. Like, I have a hard time, you know, just banging on that kid. But, you know, I think it would do him some good to sit for a season and let a transfer quarterback come in. I hope he sticks with it at Oregon State because I think they they know that you know he could be the quarterback of the future. He just needs some development. And I thought he came a long way from the first time he stepped on the field in Salt Lake City playing against Utah. It was that that game? Threw a pick in the end zone. Threw you know he had two interceptions in that game. He looked a little shaky, and I thought, oh man, this is the wheels are going to come off here for Oregon State. But what Oregon State has done so well, and Peter, you capture it, is they run the football, they play defense. And they make the best with what they have. They're, and that's coaching. And Jonathan Smith does that. Yeah, yeah. I mean, without a doubt. And, and so many times, you know, you think back to that USC game. It wasn't even like, quarterback play per se, but you go, man, I, if they had three of those throws back, you know, yeah. they're looking at an 11-win season at least. And, man, I just think DJU, I think he's heard the noise. I think he's a better quarterback than what he showed last year. I'm I'm looking for a big year. The one, question, a, about, oh, yeah. the one question about the Beavs is the defense, right? They were great mm-hmm. this year. Trent Bray gets the contract extension, but they're going to lose a lot of that secondary, right, Jay? Grant, Rajon Wright, they're, they're going to be gone. How big of a miss is that going to be for the team next season? I do love the Bees. I have them, I'd have have them in the top three. But to win the conference, I think it's a little early to say that without seeing what they got. They may be, uh, you know, I keep. I always say this, you got to sniff around it a little bit before you break through. They may be that team that sniffs around it next season, but, you know, maybe they get to Vegas, maybe they play for the conference championship. But I'm just, I, I think that, you know, there's a lot of people in the Clemson world who are looking at DJ Uyunglele and saying, hey, look, um, you know, we didn't want him. You know, he, he didn't work out. It kind of reminds me of what people were saying at Auburn about Bo Nix. And I think there's a, there's a blueprint there for quarterbacks who may, uh, you know, who may need a change of scenery. There's a blueprint there. And the thing that Oregon State does so well is they run the football, they play good defense, I know they're losing a lot of experience on the defensive side of the ball. A whole bunch of starts going away with Jack Coletto and and Wright and Jaden Grant leaving the program. But I think I like their younger guys now better than I like the younger guys from two years ago and three years ago. 
and I think they'll be fine on the defensive side of the ball. I think they're going to be lethal on the offensive side of the ball, and I think that's going to be the fun thing to see Jonathan Smith do at Oregon State. It's going to be fun to kind of watch him work with different pieces and different parts. We've seen him try to win games with Chance Nolan and Ben Goldbrinson and Tristan Jabia, and I think it's going to be neat to kind of see what he can do with a guy who was a five-star quarterback recruit, was you know the best QB in his class coming out of high school, who just needs a change of scenery. And I, I think I'm really excited to see Damian Martinez in the backfield, what the offensive line with Jim Mahalchek, the, off, the run game coordinator, what they can do. And then, uh, you know, can they add some receivers here, some of these young guys? I was looking at their signing class, and I was looking at, you know, the guys they signed last year, and I was going, okay, can we, can we forecast that Oregon State could pivot from being a run-the-football-and-play-defense team to a team that can light up the scoreboard with a quarterback that can play? And, guys, I'm going to throw a comparison out there. And we heard it on this show. Jack Guletto came on this show midseason. And he said, you know, I said, do you watch the NFL? Do you watch who's your favorite NFL team? And he said, we watch a lot of 49ers film because we run a lot of similar scheme. And I got to thinking about that as we were watching, you know, Goldbrinson play so well in the Vegas Bowl and just hammer that Florida team that was ill-equipped to be in the game. But Oregon State hammered him. Give credit to the Beavers. And I thought about that. And I thought about what, what the 49ers have done with pivoting to a quarterback you know, who had very little NFL experience this season. And even Jimmy Garoppolo, who was flawed as a quarterback in the last couple of years, they kind of remind me a little bit of Oregon State in that the quarterback needs to make some plays. The quarterback needs to be competent. But what the 49ers do in the NFL is they want to run the ball and they want to play defense. And if you load up against the run game, they will be very creative in the pass game and they'll kill you with George Kittle and they'll kill you with Ayuk and some other guys down the field and Debo Samuels and whoever. So I think Oregon State is a really interesting watch because I saw a lot of that misdirection, play action, zone run game, play some defense, and now I'm excited to see it with a quarterback who I think has got more tools and more experience than what they've had in recent years. I want your take on this. Who would you pick as the way-too-early contender in the Pac-12? We'll talk about Mike Leach. Man, that was sad stuff when I was out, finding out Leach was, uh, in first of all, in trouble and had heart issues, and then uh, hearing the news of him passing away. I'll tell you what else I found out on that front, and we'll talk a little bit about Leach coming up. I know longtime listeners of this show uh, often got to settle in and hear those long conversations with Mike Leach, and I realized, you know, uh, the day after he passed away, I was kind of looking through audio clips, and I said, you know, I don't think there's a radio show out there that had more one-on-one interviews with Mike Leach over the years. We had him on all the time. We had him on when he was at Washington State. We had him on when he was at Mississippi State. Uh, you know, the, the world is not better with Mike Leach out of it. Uh, you know, I'm sad for his family. But we'll talk a little bit about Leach in our number one today as well. I want you to leave it here. You got the BFT. We're moving fast. Back to the bald-faced truth with John Canzano on 750 The Game. Been a couple weeks since uh, Mike Leach passed away. I heard the news while I was out uh, on vacation. I couldn't believe it. Um, I know he was. 
I knew he wasn't well. I had talked to him a couple of few times during the season, uh, including one late night where he was going for a walk with his dog. And uh, he had that propensity just to reach out at all hours. And I'm one of these people who uh, uh, I'm a bit of a night owl myself. So um, I ended up in some conversations with Leach over the years that were late night conversations in which he was venting about the Pac-12 or venting about college football or just uh, on a tangent about uh, student loans or UFOs or Cowboys. You know, if you listen to this show, that we often had Leach on the show and we often talked about things that had nothing to do with what we were actually talking about. So um, I went looking for a bunch of cuts about Mike Leach and uh, went thinking about, you know, all the times we had him on the show. And then I thought, you know, I might as well at some point just uh, replay some of those things and, you know, talk to him, uh, you know, talk about, uh, you know, let you hear it in his words. But I'll say this, like, I was a little bit surprised when he passed how well regarded he was in his profession, in a profession in which I heard a lot of criticism for Mike Leach over the years. And I thought there would be some people that, you know, I don't think that they would anyone would celebrate another person's passing, but I thought that there would be more of a mixed reaction to the impact that he had on college athletics. And what I heard instead was, hey, nobody impacted all levels of football, no current modern-day coach impacted all levels of football the way that Mike Leach did. I mean, you can make an argument that Chip Kelly uh, had an impact on high school football, Pop Warner football, college football, and the NFL in his time. But there's no doubt that the stuff that Mike Leach was doing with his offense in the air raid, uh, you know, trickled down to the high school level, found its way to the Pop Warner, was all over college football, was all over the NFL. And you look at the number of coaches who came out of his program that went on to coach at other places, including Lincoln Riley at USC. And you, it's pretty darn impressive to hear him, you know, sort of do that. And for me, uh, you know, I'll just tell you a couple of quick Mike Leach stories. Um, I, I thought it was interesting the first time we ever had him on the show that he called me after the show and he told me after the show, Hey, that interview that we did was different than other interviews that I normally do. And he said, we should do that more regularly. Now, I've never had a coach reach out after doing the interviews, and some of the coaches hate doing interviews, who had said, hey, I want to do this more regularly. And so I made a mental note, like, you know, get Mike Leach back on the show, you know, in, uh, in quick order, you know, a couple weeks, whatever. But what I found was he would often just reach out when he had something to say and go, hey, I, this would be a good week to have me on. And he had something on his mind. And I think it was interesting. And a lot of times we ended up on subjects, you know this, that had nothing to do with football. In fact, one time we started talking about guns. Here's Mike Leach talking about guns. A thousand guns. But I think in order to operate a gun, you should have a license that means I know what a gun is. I know the difference between a pistol and a revolver. I know the difference between a shotgun and a rifle. Uh, I can I can I can load and unload one, and I can shoot it and within some level of competency. 
hit what I'm aiming at. And and uh, failure to do that, you're not allowed to uh, operate a gun. He was basically saying you have to have a license to drive a car. You should have to have a license to own a gun. He also talked about his dad. Uh, he grew up, his dad was a in the forestry division, and he grew up, uh, you know, essentially with his dad as a park ranger and in forestry. So he uh, he knew the outdoors. Here's about his, here's Mike Leach talking about his dad who let him shoot. But, you know, when I was between 10 and 12, my dad would toss me the keys to the gun cabinet and say, here, go out and shoot and practice, but don't use the thirty out six because it goes a long way, and I don't want you to hit a house, you know. And uh, so I'd go out in the field and shoot cans and bottles, you know. But uh, but I will say this. I keep my guns in my on, uh, in, on one part of the house totally locked up, and I keep the ammunition totally in another part of the house. Because if you think about it carefully, statistically, you're more likely to shoot yourself, a loved one, a relative, you know, this notion of uh, you come in my house, I'll shoot you, you know. Uh, I do have a Viking axe by the bed, though, in case I need to whack somebody with there, it. That's Mike Leach right there in a nutshell. Uh, you know, we also got on the subject of aliens once upon a time. I asked him, do you believe that there is life uh, in other parts of the universe? Do I think they're little green men with uh, four fingers? I suspect not. Um, but what I what I think is, um, to me, it seems like it's way too much of an aberration that out of all of existence and everything, that we're the only inhabited planet. I find that to be a strab. I says, well, <laughs> it's impossible. You know, folks that will say it's impossible for there to be life on any other planet. Well, isn't the reverse kind of true? Um, it wouldn't the reverse kind of be true that we're uh, it's it, isn't it a little more unlikely that we're the only planet that has life? Mike Leach, way too young. Um, you know, I knew that he was not the a kind of guy that really took care of himself well. I know he he uh, you know worked a lot of hours in the football season. But uh, I also know that, you know, I, I just thought to myself, there's just no way that uh, Mike Leach at 61 years old uh, was going to die this football season and certainly pass in such an unexpected manner. What did I find out afterwards? Well, um, I found out that he was suffering from heart failure, uh, that he had fluid that was in his chest that was drained. He had pneumonia that he was battling on and off during the season. Uh, I know that he joked with me in our last conversation. He was hacking and coughing, and he said, you know, uh, he had made a comment. I had done the story that I wrote about the nurse at Washington State that had saved somebody using CPR, and he made kind of a joking comment to her about, you know, hey, maybe he needs a nurse. I think he knew that he wasn't healthy, and I think he was banking on getting to the offseason and getting healthy. And I'm sure that, um, you know, his family is probably going, gosh, what could we have done? Uh, and a lot of you out there that may be dealing and not taking care of yourself and dealing with a health issue, I mean, I think it's a, it's an opportunity for you to go, hey, uh, you know, this is important stuff. And, you know, it may, I was really sad when he died. Like, I know that, you know, I'm not a family member, you're not a family member, but man, the world was much more interesting with Mike Leach in it. The college sports world was more interesting. The world in general was more interesting. He rooted for underdogs. 
He was an outside-the-box guy, didn't play college football, was a rugby player, uh, was, you know, went to law school. Instead of, you know, trying to pass the bar, he decided he wanted to be a football coach. And, you know, here he ended up in football and, and in major college football making a difference. And I'll just tell you this. When Mike Leach found out, you know, a lot of you may remember, like, last March that, you know, I left the newspaper, decided to go on my own, create my own thing, go rogue, whatever you want to call it. I just I wanted to write about the things I wanted to write about. I wanted to cover the things I wanted to cover. Uh, I didn't want to be sent here or sent there. I wanted to pick where I wanted to go, and there were some bigger stories that I wanted to chase down. And when Mike Leach found out, he sent me a note, and he said, you know, you unfiltered, it's going to be awesome. And I got to tell you, that, that meant a lot to me to get that note from him. And I got a lot of notes from a lot of different people. But for Mike Leach, who was at Mississippi State, I – you know, I'm not, there's no way I'm going to help Mike Leach. He's at M- Mississippi State. For him to do that meant a lot to me that he was encouraging me. And I think because he was an outside-the-box guy, he appreciated that. May he rest in peace. I feel for his family and his daughters. I know that one of them lived in Vancouver in southern Washington uh, just a, up until a couple of years ago. So he used to come to the Portland area often. And I think you know he thought p- fondly of downtown Portland and getting pizza and visiting with his daughter there. But, uh, you know, I feel for their family and uh, for a lot of people out there that were close with him, who considered him friends, uh, that, uh, you know, Mike Leach, dead at the age of 61, was those were not words that I thought I would utter on this radio show. Uh, I'll miss his interviews, but I'm going to put together kind of a montage of some of the best clips and cuts and interviews from Leach. And, you know, if you follow me on Twitter or you subscribe at johnconzano.com, You won't miss a thing. I want you to leave it here. We're going to go to Pasadena next. Utah's getting ready for a Rose Bowl. Is Cam Rising coming back next season? Josh Newman, Salt Lake Tribune, next. Back to the bald-faced truth with John Canzano on 750 The Game. Well, Utah's getting ready for the Rose Bowl. Is Penn State tough enough for Utah? <laughs> I want to ask my Penn State friends that. I'm going to text that to them. Are, they t- are you guys tough enough for Utah? Uh, Utah coming into this game, I really like Utah. I think this game means something for Utah. Josh Newman, Salt Lake Tribune, though, covers this team. He knows what the hell's going on with Utah. How are you doing, man? Oh, you're giving me way too much credit. I, I don't know everything that's going on. I might know a little bit of a little bit of something, but certainly not everything. All right, you got... Rose Bowl coming up, January 2nd Rose Bowl, by the way. How's that going over with the purists uh, out there? Oh, I mean, the purists haven't had a leg to stand on in like 25 years, right? Once, you know, the Rose Bowl gave up part of control to to join the BCS, and then they gave up more control to be part of the college football playoffs, and now they're giving up full control starting in 2024. So I don't really think anybody quite cares what the, uh, you know, what the purist thinks these days. All right. Let's go to this matchup because Penn State, they only lost two games this season, and they have good losses, Michigan and Ohio State. That's their losses. That's that's good, right, on paper. But I look at who they beat. They didn't beat a ranked opponent. And so I kind of like – I like Utah in this game. I think Utah's going to win this game. But how is how does Penn State look to you on paper? Yeah, I think Penn State and Utah are, you know, a little similar from the standpoint of, you know, Kyle Whittingham forever and ever, right? You know, you want to win up front, you want to run the ball, you want to control the clock, and you want to play defense. 
And for the most part, that's what Penn State wants to do too, right? You know, Sean Clifford is, is in his sixth year as quarterback at Penn State. He, he's never been a guy who's going to sling it all over the place and, and, and throw for 400 yards. You know, what, what Penn State wants to do, it's not, you know, they're not reinventing the wheel, so to speak. So, again, I think they're similar, but I think Utah's personnel is just better, right? I, look, I, th- I think Penn State's going to be physical about it, right? I think they're pretty good up front. You know, they're good enough up front to give Utah – at least a little bit of a problem. I just think Utah's personnel is is better, and I think that Cam Rising is, or or, or could be a difference maker in this game. Right, while Sean Clifford is not going to sling the ball all over the yard, Rising is capable of doing those things. Rising is capable of throwing it forty times and capable of throwing for three hundred plus yards and capable of winning this game by himself if it comes to that. I just you know. You don't want to oversimplify these things, but like the more I look at the matchup, the more I look at personnel, I just think Utah's better. I agree with that. I think Utah's going to win and cover the two-and-a-half-point spread. They're a two-and-a-half-point favorite over Penn State in this Rose Bowl. Rising and Utah, it just feels like, Josh, every time there's a big game, they show up to play. And you can circle those games going back two seasons, and you can go, that was a big game, that was a big game. They pretty much show up to play and play well, including the Pac-12 title game. What is it about this team that, that you know, sort of manifests itself in that way? I think it's a veteran group that has been through some of these things before, you know, going back to, you know, even all the way back to 2019, right? Like some of these guys have been around a long time. Like Jalen Dixon has played in multiple Pac-12 championship games. Uh, Solomon Enos has played in four Pac-12 championship games. Um, Rising is not exactly a a young guy anymore, right? He's in his fifth year of college. Um, he was on the team in 19. He wasn't eligible. He was around that team that got to the Pac-12 championship game against Oregon and came up short. So, look, it's it's like anything else. Like, you you know, you do it for the first time, and it's not easy, but then you do it again and again, and things get easier, and it becomes, you know, commonplace, and it's muscle memory and, and all these things. So I agree with you. Every time there is a big game, it seems like these guys – really show up to play they haven't won every big game right they lost to florida in the opener they you know they dropped a clunker at oregon in late november but it's not like they were getting completely outclassed and completely outplayed um but yeah the majority of the big games that guys like rising and guys like solomon enos have played in they generally show up to play yes josh newman salt lake tribune is our guest rising uh is an interesting figure in the conference you've got of course, Caleb Williams back at USC. Bo Nix and Michael Penix have decided to come back at Oregon and Washington. I know this is on your mind. Where's Cam Rising as far as another season at, in Utah, or does he go do something else? I think we entered this season just you know, assuming. We didn't know anything for sure, but I think a lot of us who cover the team and who are around the program day in and day out, we just assumed that this would be Rising's last year, right? Again, a fifth-year junior, an older guy. Uh, he has made no you know, bones about the fact that he wants to take a crack at a professional career. And his family is very sports-savvy, very football-savvy, right? You know, he comes from a home, you know, with two older brothers. One of the brothers played for Arizona State. The father is like this alpha male, big sports guy. The family knows what it's doing. If you'd ask me, well, it's not even about asking me. We asked Cam and Kyle directly five weeks ago, do you think this is it? And Kyle said that, yeah, we think this is it. We think this was his last home game on senior night. 
And Cam steps up to the podium and he said, I believe I've played my last home game. So we kind of left it there, right? You know, we know what happened. They beat Colorado. They beat USC in the Pac-12 title game. They're going back to the Rose Bowl. In the last four weeks, the whole situation has seemed to have shifted. And I'm not saying that he's definitely coming back, but it, it really feels like it has shifted towards he is leaning towards coming back. And it has, I don't want to say everything, but it has a very big amount to do with the NIL potential that Rising is, is looking at if he comes back. Um, he's probably he's probably the most prolific, at least within the football program, he's probably the most prolific football player in terms of NIL and money made and potential money to still earn. So, look, if you're asking me right now on December 27th, you know, before the Rose Bowl, before this decision really has to get made, I think he's going to wind up coming back. We just don't know for sure yet. The Utah NIL Collective, um, you know, I know of locker room athletics. Is there more than one there? And, and you know, I think, you know, you're looking at Bo Nix and Michael Penix Jr. I think the prevailing thought is those guys probably got high six figures, if not seven figures, to come back for another year. The thing that strikes me, Josh, about the Utah fan base is there are some big facilities. There are some big donors. Feels like they're, they're, the money's there for Cam Rising if he wants to come back. Yeah, that's been a huge knock for a long time now that the Utah fan base or the booster, uh, you know, the boosters or at least the boosters with the real money have not been willing or not able, whatever you want to call it, to step up and help out. And and what I mean by help out is help out to the point where guys want to come back and play another year and play another two years. Now, again, this rising thing is, is connected to NIL. And I say that rising might be leaning towards coming back or at least really, really considering it. And that has a lot to do with you're starting to see a shift now with some of the collectives or a new collective or new boosters getting involved, more deep pocket boosters getting involved. That's a big reason why this thing is shifting. Um, and again, that's a credit to, that's a credit to a lot of people, but you know, the, the, uh, the NIL stuff at Utah has not, has not been the Wild West, so to speak, as we've seen at other places. And a lot of that is because Mark Harlan, the athletic director, has has really tried his hardest to not have his athletic department turn into a circus. Uh, but, again, that, that, that's credit to him. But we are now moving to a point where it's not going to turn into the Wild West. I'm not trying to say that, but we are now getting to a point, I think, where more people with more money and deeper pockets are, are seemingly willing to, to get involved with this whole thing the you know the 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 opt-outs that we see in bowl games how has that affected utah i know a big defensive hit there but what's kind of the state of this team are are they skating at full strength so to speak no no they're certainly not at full strength but at the same time it could be a lot worse i mean look you have clark phillips who has been a projected first round pick in the 23 draft for more than a year um You know, he's a little banged up, right? He missed the Colorado game at the end of the regular season, uh, got himself together to play the Pac-12 championship game. But, you know, no blame, no shame, right? He's a projected first-round pick. He wants to worry about, you know, himself. He's trying to get healthy. He's trying to get ready for the draft. Okay, fine. He opts out. There is not another opt-out, you know, that, that we know about. There's certainly nothing that's been made public 
The only other one that's kind of out there is Dalton Kincaid, um, and Kyle was, like, very adamant that Kincaid was not an opt-out. He is, like, genuinely and significantly hurt. Like, he was also hurt against Colorado. Uh, he was limited against USC. Uh, he's pretty banged up. He's another guy with, you know, like, real legitimate, like, day two, day three draft aspirations. So he'll sit. He'll get ready for the combine. He'll get ready for the draft. So, look, that's two, that's two major players, right? That's your best, uh, your best cornerback and your other legitimate pass-catching tight end other than Brand Keithy. So now Rising is without Keithy and Kincaid. But, again, you know, you look at Penn State, they've had a bunch of opt-outs, seven, eight, nine opt-outs. Could be a lot worse if you're Utah at this point, I think. Josh Newman, Salt Lake Tribune, is with us. Um, okay, so let's take a look. You've got you, you're covering a basketball season. Uh, you know, it's not lost on me. You're working double duty, and you're covering a football season. How is that for you? And do you? And here's another one, wild one. Southwest Airlines, all the airline problems that are going on. Will that impact Utah fans trying to get to Pasadena? It's a great question. I mean, you know, the first thing, yeah, it's like we're covering double duty here. Look, I'm. This isn't my first rodeo, right? I've, I've been doing this a long time. Uh, but things certainly get interesting when you have the football team in the Rose Bowl and the basketball team, you know, with the exception of the last week, like they were playing really well, right? They beat Arizona. They won at Washington State. That's a couple of quad one wins. You, from a metric standpoint, you don't have any bad losses. You know, if you look at the NCAA tournament projections, they're kind of hovering around that 10-11 seed, like first four in Dayton type of thing. So, from that standpoint, it's interesting because both teams are playing well. There's interest. People are reading. So I need to be on top of my stuff. Um, great question about Southwest Airlines. Um, I, I, you know, I've heard from a couple, well, more than a couple, a bunch of Utah fans that are very nervous, right? It's, it's almost, well, it, it's essentially game week, right? The game is Monday, and you've got people, you know, trying to fly out of SLC. Some are on Southwest. Some are on other airlines. Other people just like last year, are, are opting to drive, okay? It's like nine, nine and a half hours from Salt Lake City uh, to downtown L.A. So, uh, look, I'll tell you this from a personal standpoint. Um, I am in Salt Lake City right now. We tried to put my wife and my son on a plane from Salt Lake to Seattle on Saturday, got canceled three times, and we finally got her out on Sunday morning, okay? So I'm hoping by the time I get to the airport tomorrow morning that there is less of a circus and that my 8.05 a.m. flight to LAX takes off without a hitch. You're going to be fine. I'm sending you good wishes and good luck on that <laughs> trip. Hey, thanks for what you're doing. Uh, for people who want to follow Josh, you can read him uh, at the Salt Lake Tribune. You can follow him on Twitter as well. Uh, he is a really good follow on Twitter. You should do that, at Joshua underscore Newman on Twitter. Good luck to you. I know you'll cover the heck out of the, this game, but uh, I like Utah to cover the two-and-a-half uh, are you in the same camp? I am. Yeah, I, I do like Utah to cover the two and a half. Uh, Utah's uh, averaging, like they're hovering around like 40 points a game. I don't think they're going to get to 40. I'm not even convinced that anyone's going to get to 30, um, but I think it's going to take like 24, 27 points to win this thing. I like Utah 31-27 covering the two and a half. Josh Newman, Salt Lake Tribune. Thank you, my friend. I want you to leave it here. Our big splash is coming up. Top of the hour, we will talk to Matt Preem who covers the Ducks for 24-7 Sports. He did what Newman said some of the, the Utah fans are doing. He jumped in a car. He drove 1,000 miles from Eugene all the way to San Diego to cover the Holiday Bowl. What was that like? He'll join us to talk about the bowl game and the drive there coming up. 
You've got the home of the truth. Back to the bald face truth with John Canzano on 750 The Game. Holiday Bowl coming up tomorrow. I'm 2-0 and in my Pac-12 bowl game picks. 2-0 and against the spread. Want to keep that going. I'm picking Oregon to win the Holiday Bowl, but I'll give my picks coming up in uh, hour number two. Uh, Anna will join us as well. And Matt Prem of 24-7 Sports is going to tell us what it's like to drive a 1,000 miles to go to a Holiday Bowl. He was among those affected by the flight cancellations. He did not want to chance it, and so he jumped in a car with several other reporters, and they made the trip on four wheels all the way from Eugene, Oregon to San Diego. Uh, it's not an insane drive, but it certainly raises some questions about your sanity. But Or maybe maybe I'll spin it positive. It raises some confirmation about Matt Prem's dedication to his craft, that he was willing to jump in a car with other media members, mind you, right? This isn't like hanging out in a press box. You're stuck in a car for a thousand miles what is that 15 17 18 hours i don't even know how many times do you stop who's driving who do you let drive in that situation do you guys do you have to be the driver i remember mike leach uh, on this show speaking of mike leach we talked about that when he goes on recruiting trips he says he's not one of the people he's not one of these guys that needs to be the driver um do you need to be the driver when you're taking a road trip, Stephen and Peter? Uh, I don't have a choice. My wife is always the driver. She uh, she gets very car sick in the car, so I I abide by that and I let her do it. Uh, so it's very rare that I'm actually the driver. Yeah, I don't have to be at all. With I'm, I can think of two or three exceptions, but it's not uh, my principle. It's uh, you know maybe some of my buddies driving. I don't trust. It's generally it's generally I'm generally the driver. But I like that your wife is playing the "Hey, I get car sick" card to get out of having to manage the kids, Stephen. Are you saying? Are you saying she's she's lying? I'm not saying she's lying. I'm just saying. I need you to dig into this investigative <laughs> reporting for me. In our household, there's two jobs. One person's driving the car. The other person's managing the children. And I will often say to Anna, like, "Hey, uh, you want to drive? You want to manage the children?" And then I go, "Never mind, I'll, I'll drive." <laughs> well, <laughs> because yeah, I know what you're saying. Because I, you know, as in the front seat, I have like three water bottles on the floor in yep. front of me, like <laughs> snacks, coats, other shoes, like yeah, toys. It's everything. Yeah, I, I'm stuck with it. But I will say, I'm a great, uh, great, you know, passenger driver there. I, I, I drive the kids and I get them on their way. So it's, it's good. That's good stuff. All right, we every day on the show we do our big splash. Today it comes with a retirement announcement. This is the one thing you absolutely need to know today. Look, look, look at it. Where? Down there. The Big Splash. Well, J.J. Watt took matters into his own hands today. Cardinals defensive lineman announced in a tweet that he will retire at the end of this season. He uh, pointed out that it was his child's first ever NFL game and his last ever NFL home game. Love and gratitude, he said, photo of he and his wife and his family. But 12-year career has two games left, both of them on the road. He'll go to Atlanta and then San Francisco to play the Falcons and the 49ers. He'll walk away as a likely first ballot Hall of Famer, one of three players to be named Defensive Player of the Year three times in his career. Lawrence Taylor and Aaron Donald are the other two players. All three of those awards came when he played for the Houston Texans, uh, who selected him 11th overall in 2011 out of Wisconsin. 
He'll finish his career with the Cardinals. He signed with them uh, two years ago. He spent 10 seasons with the Texans, one of three Watt brothers to play in the NFL. His first child was born in October. Uh, but you may remember in late September, J.J. Watt had the rhythm of his own heart reset after he had an atrial fibrillation. And he played days later. He has 111 and a half sacks. That's 26th all time in the NFL. He's the only player to get 20 sacks in multiple seasons. He's done it twice. Uh, since he was drafted in 2011, there are only three other players who have more sacks than he has. Chandler Jones, Cameron Jordan, and Von Miller. He's also first in batted passes, second in fumble recoveries, and tied for third in forced fumbles during his career. J.J. Watt, um, a guy who's uh, generally uh, regarded as one of the best defensive players in football, also has some impact off the field. His foundation's raised nearly $7 million since it was started. And uh, in the wake of Hurricane Harvey, you may remember his foundation raised $37 million to distribute to victims. His initial goal for that was $200,000. J.J. Watt, regarded as one of the good guys in the NFL, is hanging it up. This will be his final season in the NFL. Uh, why do you think? Why do you guys think he announced it like now? Why not wait until after it was over? Hey, this was my last one. Why not pull a David Shaw? Um, I don't. I'm, I'm glad he did it now compared to earlier in the season. Like this had to have a send off tour, so I, I think it's okay that you know. I think it was just timing with the kid going to the game for the first time. I think that really had to do a lot with it. Uh, I am glad though he didn't do it at the start of the year. I, I hate those send off tours. I do, too. I also wonder, like, it was weird to me that he didn't announce it maybe prior to the last home game. You know, did he not want, and I'm sure he'll be asked about that when reporters meet with him, did he not want to be a distraction? Uh, I don't know. Uh, coming up in hour number two, we'll talk about uh, Clyde Drexler and Damian Lillard. We'll talk uh, to Matt Prem of 24-7 Sports about Oregon's uh, attempt to win the Holiday Bowl. Leave it here. <laughs> B-F-F-T. From the Pac West Center in downtown Portland, presented by High Caliber Millwrights, here's John Canzano with the bald-faced truth. I've made some long drives in my lifetime. I drove across the country a couple times. I was living in Tallahassee, Florida. Took a job then uh, in California, and I packed my stuff up, drove across the country. That's a long drive. I also drove uh, at the end of a season. I was covering the Big Ten, covering basketball. I was tired of the snow, tired of the cold, dreary weather in Big Ten country. Season ended. I was covering uh, Indiana basketball at the time, and they got knocked out of the NCAA tournament by Ron Artest and St. John's. Mike Jarvis coaching uh, St. John's. And I remember getting in my car, and I said, I'm just going to drive south. I need a break. And I drove south until I saw the sun. I drove all the way to Alabama and then into Florida before I saw the sunlight. Matt Prem, 24-7 Sports, went on a drive recently. He drove from Eugene, Oregon, all the way to uh, San Diego, California, for the Holiday Bowl. Let's talk to Prem about that. How are you doing, man? Uh, John, that was not by choice. I want everyone to know that was not by choice I made that drive because, God, it's awful. <laughs> Let me ask you. All right, take us through this. Before we even talk about this football game, which I want to talk about, but take us through kind of your planes, trains, and automobiles experience. Like, what did you intend to right. do, and what happened? 
So I was supposed to leave on the 24th down to San Diego. And then I, I want to say like a week before, maybe even less than that, I, I just reached out to Oregon and was like, hey, like, are you guys really going to be doing anything on the 25th from a media accessibility standpoint? Or would I be just sitting in my hotel because we've got young kids, I want to be home for the morning of Christmas, what, what are we doing here? And they said, no, no, like, you're good. Uh, there's nothing on the 25th. 26th is the first day that we'll do something. So I changed my flight to the 25th around 2.20 I think was the original time. And I'm sitting there opening presents, monitoring, making sure nothing's happened. I wasn't expecting anything. I was like, yeah, this storm is going to impact everything, but it's it's flying from Eugene, which on Christmas Day was 63 degrees and sunny. I'm flying to San Diego. I'll be fine. I don't need to worry about it. And then about two hours before the, the departure, things started happening. It getting, gets delayed 30 minutes. It gets delayed again another 30 minutes. It just kept going and going. And by about 3.30, I got to the the airport, tried to pull up my mobile pass and noticed it wasn't working. And I had to go to the ticket counter. Ticket counter uh, had a long line. I got through everything. I got my pass. Um, and I got to the gate and about two minutes for boarding. And I was, okay, I made it. It's all that matters. And then they canceled the flight. And they said that uh, they're, they're not going to be able to really do anything at, at the gate, go down to, to the ticket counter. And we got to the ticket counter. They said their system was froze. They couldn't do anything from that standpoint uh, and to just basically go home. And um, at that point, James Crepia, uh, the Oregonian beat reporter, he and I were on the same flight. And he looks at me and goes, it's $100 car rental right now. They've got something available. Do you want to do it? And I was like, $100? Yeah, like, it's, that's cheap. I don't want to drive, but sure. So he books the car rental, and we get to the, the, the counter to get our keys for the car, and the Enterprise guy tells James that all we have is a pickup truck. <laughs> and you could you could wait a little bit of time, and we could maybe have a sedan. And I'm just like, oh, my God. I, 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 I do not want to do this. And, John, it's the reason I don't want to do this is I have made this trip before, in a pickup truck. Um, in 2009, Oregon played in the Rose Bowl. That was the first year that my website was in existence. And the SID at the time said, internet sites have to go a year of covering practice in person to, to qualify for getting a credential for the season. So I, I could not go to the Rose Bowl credential. So I was like, well, I gotta go to the game. So my wife and I, we booked a flight. I was going to go in the stands right about afterwards from there. And well, we all, that flight also got the, you know canceled because of snow. And I ended up hitching a ride with two friends who were driving a pickup truck down to the Rose Bowl. Um, it was miserable. Sitting in a pickup truck, driving to San Diego, it was about 2 a.m. in the morning when we hit 800 miles of, of driving. And I just looked at James and it was like, we're halfway there and we've been in the car for eight hours and we still have seven more to go. And I do not wish that hell on anybody. Uh, It's awful. And I'm praying to God, I do not have to uh, do that back because I'm in a wedding uh, on the 31st and I have a rehearsal dinner on the 30th that I need to be at. And 
I'm on a Delta flight coming home. I already changed that, and I'm just praying to God Delta has no problems because I do not want to drive back to Eugene. You're not driving back to Eugene. By the way, is Crepia going to have to take the car back, Does he, or can he leave it in San Diego? It was That was the weird $100 for a one-way leave-the-pickup-truck in San Diego. So he... <laughs> I don't know what James's return flight is. I know it was Southwest like me. He hadn't changed like I did yesterday. Uh, no idea what his, his status is. Doesn't my, matter. My, I found, a, <laughs> I, I, I found a, a flight on Delta yesterday because I saw uh, Southwest had like 80% of their flights yesterday canceled. And I was like, boy, that's scary. So I went and found a flight for $340 refundable on Delta. Yep. I bought it just in case my Southwest flight got canceled it did and i checked the flight price for that delta flight this morning it's now up to fourteen hundred dollars yeah you did the right thing smart guy you know you've done this before savvy savvy traveler matt preem with us uh what did it feel like when you finally arrive in san diego after 15 hours in the car or the truck um i this is where i just Dude, my, I, I love my job too much because I got checked into the hotel and I got to my room at 9.30 in the morning. Thank God um, had a syllable. And I was like, well, I have a podcast that I technically was going to be on in 30 minutes starting. Um, we do an interview with a uh, team that Oregon's playing, their beat reporter, to kind of preview the, the game. And... I originally said I wasn't going to be there, but I could make it now. So I quickly hopped in the shower, and for whatever reason, I had no hot water, so I had to take a shower in freezing cold hot water. That woke me up. So it was quite interesting. When the when podcast got done, I laid down, and I fell asleep for about three and a half hours. And it was probably some of the best sleep I've had. No one will ever question your dedication to your craft, <laughs> Matt Prem. So... Uh, bless you for getting there and covering this game. Let's talk about this game. Uh, you've got yeah. really good quarterbacks in this game. Drake May, Bo Nix, uh, both coordinators, both teams lost their coordinators to other uh, other programs. I'm expecting a whole bunch of points. What are you expecting? Uh, I believe the record for points is like 89 for the Holiday Bowl. I, I think they hit 90 for a combined point total. Um Oregon's defense is terrible, and they have lost their best player at all three levels. DJ Johnson is is not playing in this game. He opted out. Uh, Noah Sewell, he opted out for the Noah Sewell at linebacker declared for the draft and will not play. And then Christian Gonzalez at corner is also declared for the draft, and he will not play in this game. And then on the flip side, North as bad as Oregon's defense is, North Carolina's is worse, and they have no pass rush. The, just like Oregon, their defensive line is suspect. Their linebackers are suspect. Their corners are terrible. Uh, their safeties are not good. And they've had three starters in the secondary opt out. Uh, so this is the perfect makeup for a bowl game because this isn't – you're not coming to watch a slugfest. If, if, obviously, the defensive slugfest. Like if you're just some dude who's watching college football in Texas, you want to see big plays. You want to see touchdowns. You want to see bombs through the air. You want to see offensive explosion, and that's what we're going to get. We've got probably a, a top five draft pick in Luke May next in next year's draft. Uh, he's coming back. 
And then we've got Bo Nix, who is going to be drafted in the 2024 NFL draft at some point. Both guys will be in that discussion for top five quarterbacks of 2023 college football, um, if, if not inside the top five. Uh, and then you've got some, some offenses that put up big numbers. So I think defense will be optional. Um, offense will be spectacular. And we should see a ton of points in this football game uh, Wednesday night. Bo Nix will play. The whisper is that he'll be close to healthy. What do you read that to mean, close to healthy? Uh, close to healthy means he will be running the football. I imagine he will run the ball, but it will probably be a little bit of some select moments, like how he led the team a couple times and run. Um, I, I think it's all going to be calculated risks of when he runs, but it won't be like against Utah when it was such a shock at that last play of the game to see him pull the ball out and run upfield on that bum ankle where, you know, against Oregon State, they couldn't do that. They tried, and it was very evident he couldn't pull it off. Um, he game, uh, and that should open up the Oregon offense a little bit more. They, keep in mind, yes, they don't have their offensive coordinator. Both uh, Mac Brown mentioned this about how watching the film, he you know during the weeks leading up to this game, he kept telling his coaches, "We need to run the football, get back to running the football a lot like how Oregon does because they they." And healthy. They they will all play in this game. They have their three best running backs healthy. They will all play in this game. And when Oregon's been at its best, it's been a team that's been balanced and can run and throw the football. And I think we'll see some of that show uh, tomorrow night. Do we know what the Knicks injury was? Is it was it a high ankle sprain? Was there a fracture in there? Do did we ever get a hunch or a clarification on that? No one's ever like a hundred percent said what it is. Um Bo's referenced a couple times a similar injury to what happened to him at Auburn. Um, I, I, I hate to speculate, but it does right. sound just very similar to just a, a really bad high ankle sprain. You know, he announces he's coming back, which I think is great for the conference. We're going to have great quarterbacks next year. Um, you know, and it makes sense to me because I, I view him as – you know, he's a fringe NFL guy right now. Like, I think he would stick on a roster. I think he would have a career. I think, you know, he'd, he'd – but I also think there's some money for him in this NIL world for him to come back. Were you surprised that when he announced he was coming back? Um, if you told me August 1, Bo Nix would return in 2023, I would have been shocked. But – when he came out and and put it out that he was going to come back in mid-December, I was not shocked at all. I, that's what I was anticipating. Because when he said he was playing in the game, what, what's the value? This is a game that, you know, it, it's not the Holiday Bowl of 2000. And, of 2000. It, it, it's not going to be a game that they are going to have, you know, it, it, it's just a different era of college football now. Um and they're expecting like a huge crowd. They're, 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 supposedly they're expecting like almost 40,000 people to be at this football game. Um, a lot of it being the local crowd. But it just when he said he's playing in this game, that was like a he, he's coming back. There's no reason other than he's coming back to play. So the way things transpired for him in his season as things progressed, you know, the whispers started getting out and they getting, started getting louder and louder as the season progressed that – yeah, maybe Bo Nix is going to come back. He he loves Eugene. It's been a really big eye-opening experience for him and his wife. Um, it's a different area. And, and like, 
I, I just think there's something to having fun, like, and, and playing well and not wanting to leave that. Yes, the NIL mo- the money factors into that as well. But, like, Bennett Williams, I asked him a couple weeks ago, of like, why are you playing in this game? Like, you you said last year you didn't want to leave this program in its current format. You wanted to help usher in the landing era. And so you came back for that extra year that because of COVID. And you've done that. You you I, you have done everything asked of you to to get Oregon to a better place on and off the football field. Why are why are you risking everything? And he was he, his answer was because this is like the most fun I've ever had playing football. Like this season has just been tremendous, and I, I think that's factored into a lot of these guys of whether they're six year seniors like a Forsythe or a Bennett Williams of why they would play in this game or why it would Bo Nix would return is this season for this team has been a ton of fun and the connection and the bond that they have, they just want one more experience of it. Does does Nick's coming back, how does that affect that, that quarterback room? Jay Butterfield already in the portal out of, out of the picture, but, you know, I, I think immediately, I thought immediately of Ty Thompson. I, I thought immediately of, uh, of Dante Manning. Um, or not Dante Manning, um, Dante Moore, excuse me. Right. Um, because... When Nick's when when Moore committed to Oregon in July, I think it was, um, the understanding was, hey, like you're going to show up and there's going to be an open competition, and you will have an opportunity to win the starting job. And in today's day and age, that level of a quarterback wants to play, and they want to play right away. And it's very rare to find a guy who's willing to sit and wait. And Butterfield is gone. I, I think Ty is going to stay, um, and, and I, I hope he does. And I hope his story ends in a positive manner because I don't think he's been very good this season. He hasn't looked good. He struggled last season. There's a neg- negative aura around him within the fan base, and I don't think that's entirely fair um, either. And so I kind of hope that's going to be a guy that, you know, the storyline of it, maybe it's just the journalist in me of just seeing a guy preserved through so much negative outlook towards him from a fan base to preserve through that and become a good player. Um, next season, they, they they flipped Baylor's commit Austin Novosad um, last minute. They got him on a secret visit for uh, an official with his family the last weekend before signing day. Um, that should be their quarterback room. Getting Novosad in locks them in. Um, and now it's all about putting Ty or putting Bo in a place where he can compete for the Heisman, and hopefully finding time, finding ways to better develop um, Ty Thompson and to better develop Austin Dovisad. They've got to do. I, I would. I think one of the few critical errors this coaching staff did. I, I feel like this season was there was ample opportunity to get Ty Thompson in the game and then run their regular stuff. It really felt like. Ty got in, but he didn't get to play a lot with the first-team offense. Or when they did run the first-team offense out there, it was run-run screen. They didn't run their typical stuff. Um, Ty got a lot more reps this season than he did under Mario Cristobal, and that's the first big step. But now next year, it's you've got to get him in the game, and you've got to find ways to manufacture 50 throws and get him some experience, get him ready to go to compete in 2024. Matt Prem, keep up the fight. You're doing great work. Uh, you can read him on 24/7 Sports. Uh, listen to his podcast. 
make sure you follow him on Twitter. And if you need a ride, he's got a pickup truck available to him anytime, anywhere, <laughs> any destination. Uh, hey, get home safely after this game, Matt. I appreciate you making time. Absolutely. Thanks, John. There he is. 15 hours in a pickup truck. There you have it. <laughs> when he said pickup truck, I almost lost it. Leave it here. Anna's popping in the studio next. We have so much to talk about. Back to the bald face truth with John Canzano on 750 The Game. That bum music there, that it makes I feel like uh I should be on one of those uh, mystery murder mystery shows with that man. Don don don. Like we need uh we need crime stoppers to sponsor this segment or something. Anna's popped into the studio, she's joined us. What do you think of Matt Prem driving fifteen hours in a pickup truck to go cover a football game? Uh that's dedication. I'm impressed. <laughs> I am really impressed. <laughs> There's a lot of that going on right now. People are really having a hard time with air travel and renting cars left and right. Well, uh, I don't understand people in general. People at the airports are upset at the airlines. But most of my uh, TikTok feed shows me people getting kicked off planes. I don't know how my algorithm thinks I'm into this. Maybe I stayed with a video a little too long. But uh, people getting escorted off planes is a thing for me. Uh-huh. Uh, but, but also bad fan behavior at stadiums pop, pops up in my algorithm. So I must be into this. And then crocodiles eating animals that are coming to the watering hole to get a drink. Yes. Those are the things that pop mm-hmm, up mm-hmm. on my TikTok. Those are your top threes. My top threes. Yeah. Also fishing. Yeah. I'm always into whatever it is they're pulling out of the water. <laughs> I don't necessarily want to be in the boat with them, but I'm into this stuff. Um, this is like a little stroll inside yeah. your brain. We should all have to open our TikTok, if you have it, and sit, tell me the first three videos that pop up. Some people you, know? you might not want to see <laughs> their top three videos, John. I don't know. I don't know. It, was, it's, it spurs a lot of discussion. <laughs> I'll say that. Um, or it could silence a crowd. <laughs> uh, hey, by the way, here we are. We're back from a, a couple weeks of vacation. <sighs> What, what was that? What was that sigh? I just want to go back. You want to be on vacation I, some more? Yeah. Yep, yep. <laughs> but you had the duty of managing the kids a lot of time on this That's vacation. That's okay. That's okay. That didn't feel like work to you? Uh, Sure. Of course. It still sometimes feels like work. But, um, you know, for me, it's not having to get up at oh dark 30 oh. and make all the breakfasts and get them off to school. Like that rushiness of the morning. I, I, it's really pleasant to not have that. <laughs> By the way, I just got a, a text from one of our close friends, Dan. Yeah. Who uh, he and his family are in Disneyland right now. Yes, they are. And he sent me a photograph of uh, I think how many kids do they have? They have nine. Nine, or, nine kids. Yep. He spent, sent me a photograph of it looks like it's seven of their kids, mm-hmm. all in front of that castle, and they're jumping up and down. Yeah. And, and it looks really happy mm-hmm. at Disneyland. But some of the news stories that are coming out of Disneyland today, Peter and Steven, I don't know if you've seen this, but Disneyland is, got, is cracking down on respect, kindness, and compassion. Apparently there have been some fights at Disneyland during this holiday season. A fight broke out at Epcot in Florida where one person was hospitalized and three were arrested. It was apparently a brawl between two families at Disney World. 
Also, a shouting match turned physical on the tram at Magic Kingdom in a separate incident in late July. Disney is now warning visitors on its website that engaging in any unsafe act that uh, may impede the operation of Disneyland is prohibited. Isn't that kind of assumed? I kind of assume that Disneyland's like the bartender of fun. And if you're not behaving yourself and having fun, if you are like if you're being a jerk at Disneyland, that they can just kick you out. Like you don't have to go home, but you can't stay at Disneyland. Yeah, Disneyland, the scrappiest place on earth, right? <laughs> How can you get in a fight at Disneyland? It's too much fun. You're sta- I mean, what the lines are too long? Do people get aggro? Peter. Peter, have you not been at Disneyland like at nighttime mm-hmm. after the electrical parade or whatever that thing is called rolls through? People have been there since, you know, a.m. real early because they're trying to maximize that expensive ticket and nerves are fried, man. It's like, uh, you know, you're on the tram and you're heading into Disneyland. Yeah. Everybody's like bright faced excited yeah, buttoned yeah. that's up. why you got to take the picture on the way in and then on the way home you all, you watch the tram going home people look like they have been through hell they're they look like they you've been in the casino too long is what i want to yell at them as they're as they're driving away um, kids are just passed out crying tantrum central but like let's talk about this for a second because we're watching you know in the nfl we had this incident during the last couple of weeks where the Raiders fan is yelling at the Patriots fan at you know in Las Vegas. We've seen brawls and fights in sports stadiums. We always blame alcohol. I'm assuming alcohol is not the reason that people are fighting at Disneyland. It's probably just family on family crime that is happening there. But what is it about people? Why are we turning to uh, violence in these large social settings? Ah, uh, that's a tough one. I I don't know. I mean, I I've never had the uh, the thought to start fighting people in public like that. Um, but yeah, it is interesting because because my algorithms have the same thing. I don't have TikTok, but like my Twitter algorithms always pop up with like yeah. uh, fights at stadiums and stuff. Yeah. I always I guess I you must like click them. I you like to watch it. I like, you to, like watch to watch it. it. You don't want to participate, but you want to watch it. Yeah, yeah. I, that's definitely for sure. I you know I don't know if people want to be uh, you know viral they want to go viral these fights or what but i think anna was on to something like we just get tired and overwhelmed and we want to get the most for our money like i i emphasize with that like when my kids waste something i get very upset i'm like we can't be wasting money like this i bought this we got to use it or we got to eat it so i i get that i think that may have a lot to play with it i'm also a little bit concerned about like disneyland putting on their website like there's a big the news story is disneyland's added a courtesy section to their website like that's going to stop two guys from fighting in line at It's a Small World. Like, no, but it's a chilling effect. It's basically they're trying to send a message, you know, that, like, they're setting the ground rules. Like, listen, shape up, and in case you needed a reminder, here's our policy. But don't you think yeah. some of this have to, has to do with the pandemic as well? I mean, I know we're so sick of talking about it, but, like, I find as I walk around and just, like, talk to people in general, whether it's the grocery store clerk or you know, friends or whatever that like people just still aren't quite normal yet. Like we were in isolation for quite a while. Everybody was very focused on their own health and staying alive and, you know, not getting coronavirus and especially in the early stages and how scary it was. And everybody's been very inwardly turned for several years. And I don't know how long it's going to take people to come out of that, but I just don't think that 
we I think we were kind of set back like I think the kids are set back but I think adults are also set back in our ability to just be civil with one another and even like make conversation in social settings I, I find myself sometimes awkward I'm you know and I don't know I, I I just feel like I'm not alone in that I think you're probably right with uh, the fact that you know that people are still trying to learn how to be hu human and coming out of their yeah. own out of their own cave but uh, I also think like from a corporate standpoint I've noticed with the teams and the stadiums and the games that they're understaffed they're understaffed at the stadiums because they can't get people to take some of the jobs and I wonder if Disneyland's having some staffing issues too because I think when you get you know when you're understaffed but you're also facing the pressure as a corporate company to make as much money as you can because hey you got shut down for a while and you're they're trying to catch back up still i wonder if disneyland is uh sending too many people into the park and they're not equipped to handle that volume of people hmm. why don't you take some fewer people into the park too i'd like to see that the crowd thinned out a little bit because i don't i don't like i don't particularly enjoy like I like going on the rides, but I got news for you. The last time I was at Disneyland, we had the young kids with us. The kids just wanted to go on the teacups and Peter Pan at Small World. I literally said to myself as we were standing in line of these rides, I'm like, this is no longer about me. Like, if it were about me, Anna, you and I would go to Disneyland, we'd leave the kids at home. And I know couples that do that. It's true. They take off and they go and they go, hey, we're going to Disneyland, we're going to leave the kids, and yeah. then we'll take the kids on a different trip. Because you're not going on Space Mountain and Matterhorn with the six-year-old. Now, yeah. they, maybe the six-year-old would go. Our six-year-old's a daredevil, but the eight-year-old's not doing it. The most excitement that we saw was Thunder Mountain Railroad. Woo! So, um, yeah, I mean, I think we both mentally resolved not to go back for some time because for the amount of money that it's you spend, crazy. even just getting to the park, let, let alone getting to Southern California <laughs> and living there and staying there, yeah. but just the price of getting into the park, the price of admission is so high that we're like, all right, we got to give this a few years because to Stephen's point, we need to maximize this experience, man. We, we can only do the small world so many times. Yeah, speaking of maximizing, it's like when even when you buy like the food and beverage in there you buy that you use that little straw the coffee stirrer straw to sip your soda because it's like a nine dollar soda <laughs> you're just like let me i want to make this last a little longer but the la like se a couple times ago then we were there anna you you brought up the idea you said you've never been there at night after the parade i will never forget this was probably seven eight nine years ago brother-in-law had a stroller do you remember this? Oh, I'll never he had a stroller, it. and he was trying to navigate through all the people at Disneyland after well, the because, light parade. Okay, anybody that's been to Disneyland knows when it's time for that parade to come around, whether it's day or night, they gotta clear the parade route, right? So there's there's like a certain crowd management thing that happens within about a 15 minute period where they gotta clear people out of the way and actually make the route passable. Go ahead. Yeah, but but this is, you know, brother-in-law started the day. He was peaceful. Yeah. He was happy. Uh -huh. He was in Disneyland. Yeah. Um, I laughed so hard because it was after the parade. It was difficult. Visibility was poor. It was dark. <laughs> and people were just 
passing in front of him, and he was ramming his stroller into the ankles of people going, get the bleep out of my way. Get the bleep out of my way. And I turned and I said, happiest Happiest place on earth. (laughs) And I will never forget that. Uh, But let's just, I guess as a public service, I would say this. If you're going to the grocery store or church, you're not going looking for a fight. When you're going to your sports stadium or you're going to your gym or you're going to Disneyland, you should also not be looking for a fight. You should be able to wear some open-toed shoes knowing, hey, I'm not going to have to scrap today. You know, like you don't need to tape up your your fists and, you know, bring your brass knuckles to uh, Pirates of the Caribbean. It's all supposed to be fun for your kids. Like, that's what Walt Disney had in mind. So don't get tanked at your NFL game and start, uh, you know, looking for a fight. You're not, you're not in a gang, because you're, even if you're rooting for a team. And you shouldn't be at Disneyland looking to uh, throw fists and get kicked out. And by the way, the Disneyland security team... They do a hell of a job. Like, you can't get a selfie stick into Disneyland. How are these fights even happening? I remember, you know, our teenager that one year, she brought a little selfie stick. We got up to the gates of Disneyland, and they said, no, 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 you can't bring that in here. Yeah. And I said, give it to me. I'll take it back. But I really intended to just, you know, walk like a block or two and hide it in the bushes. Sure, because no one had ever done that. And and if it's there, (laughs) we get it back. Because I was not going all the way back to the hotel. So I walk like a block or two, I stick it in the bushes, tiny little stick, right, that's going on the end of a GoPro or something. And and then when we come out of the park, um, you know, it's gone. And not only is it gone, the security guy is standing there and he goes, yeah, yeah, we people do this all the time. They stick them in the bushes all the time. I'm like, damn, you guys are like next level. You should be TSA. Like, forget getting, you know, going through an airport. Get Try getting a selfie stick into Disneyland. But uh, I digress. Why are people throwing a fit in fighting at Disneyland because they're fed up. And I think, Anna, you're right. There may be a loss of civility and maybe we've forgotten how to behave ourselves. Leave it here. So much more ahead. You got the BFT. Back to the bald face truth with John Canzano on 750 The Game. On tomorrow's show, Big Dave's coming on the show. Big Dave's coming on. Uh, DJ Uyangalele's father, Big Dave Uyangalele, is coming on the show. Uh, former bodyguard for Rihanna and others uh, is coming on to talk about raising kids. Um, I've heard good things about Dave. You may have heard some good things about Dave. He's lived some uh, lived some life, but I want to hear about his kids. I want to hear about parenting. Want to know what it's like to be a bodyguard. Big Dave on tomorrow's show. Later in the week on Friday, we have Kenny Dillingham, the Arizona State head coach. Former Oregon Ducks offensive coordinator will be joining us on Friday's show. Yeah, questions for Kenny Dillingham? You can uh, tweet at me, at John Canzano BFT. Is it still raining and windy outside, guys? Can you see out the windows? I am... uh, uh, last I checked, I went out earlier today. I saw trees that came out of the ground. I saw street signs that flew down. Anna, you were running an errand. You turned around and came home. <laughs> yeah, I, I don't know. Maybe it's 20 years of news coverage of, like, trees falling on cars and piercing windows. I had the kids with me, 
and I was uh, not not pleased with driving in these conditions. So uh, yeah, high wind advisory in effect until 7 p.m. tonight uh, in the Portland metropolitan area. All max trains in Portland uh, were traveling no faster than 30 miles an hour. They were expecting delays there. Guys, did you deal with any wi- any wind or rain or any weather-related trouble today? Ooh, I did. Yeah, I, I took mass transit and I took the bus, and it was <laughs> so bizarre. The wind almost blew me over. I'm a pretty big guy just walking on the uh, the sidewalk, and it was pretty ca- uh, calm in terms of people out. There weren't many people out, and there was just randomly a deli tray, like something you would get at a cafeteria just blowing. It was like the Portland version of a tumbleweed just blowing by me. Uh, but yeah, it's gnarly. It's still raining pretty hard. It looks like the wind settled down, but a giant tree went down just a few blocks from here in front of the uh, the art museum. It's serious. Yeah, I was, I was driving in. Uh, a lot of the stoplights were out, so it was a lot of stopping and uh, stopping and going there in traffic. So it was uh, it was pretty bad out there. There were some power outages uh, that were around the Portland metropolitan area. Um, they are expecting more rain and wind, up to 45 miles an hour winds uh, through early tomorrow. So be careful out there. I was driving. I went to the post office, and I was driving, and I saw on this one street two trees that were completely out of the ground on their side, and then a street sign that was also in the same position. And I was, and it wasn't like this giant. It wasn't like a wind catcher street sign. It was like a normal, like no parking on this block street sign that just. Apparently had enough wind, knocked it right over. Yeah. You got to be careful out there. I know. This kind of stuff, uh, you know, we were trying to get to a veterinary appointment for one of our dogs, and we just couldn't make it. There was um, something ahead of us on the highway. It was either an accident or a downed tree that completely blocked the highway. And then when we turned around to head back home, the same route that we were on also had a tree come down. But it was in the other line, so I was like, "Okay, that's enough." We're I'm like, "This is enough white knuckle driving for me. I don't. This is not worth it. We're gonna have to call and reschedule." You're done with that. <laughs> um, okay, so be careful out there with the weather is what we're saying. Uh, I had a column today that I wrote at johnconzano.com. I want to talk about here for just a second, um, and I I basically want uh, pointed out in the piece, and I want to know what you guys think about this. That you know we've always heard media members rant against you know players that didn't play well teams that didn't play well i'll give you an example this Kane's disaster i have never seen our defensive tackles this bad ever horrific poor that's a bad football team right now the miami hurricanes bad how did it get to a point where we don't have respect hey it's one thing to get beat but it's another thing for people to look down on us now. Like, we're like Eastern Michigan. Mother, I'm telling you, if I see another defensive tackle on the University of Miami sitting around looking for girls in the stands and not running to the football and putting a hat on someone's ass, you are going to be held accountable. I'm going to have an aneurysm in here. I am going to have an aneurysm the next time I see somebody not hit somebody. Son of a bitches, hit somebody! So that is a Miami radio show host, WQAM, uh, Dan Cilio, uh, talking about the Hurricanes. That's not a new clip. That's a clip that was from several seasons ago. But I, I got to thinking about that clip and a radio show host in Arkansas who was reprimanded in the spring after he harshly criticized an, an uh, Arkansas baseball player 
called him a disgrace, called him a loser, um, said, you know, you're a rental player, you sucked, thanks for nothing. Um, it got me thinking about NIL. And I'll tell you what I mean by this. And I want to kick this around. I want listeners to participate in this as well. That there's always been sort of a scale of what is appropriate when it comes to expectations and criticism that exist in sports. I'll give you an example. We don't criticize little league players who make errors during games. We hold them to a different standard than we hold the Los Angeles Dodgers or the Yankees or a Major League Baseball player. Uh, you know, high school football players, uh, you know, let's say a quarterback throws three interceptions, you might mention it. But you don't call for his head in print, or you don't boo the team at the game. You understand? These are high school kids. They're not getting paid. And the little leaguers are getting a juice box after the game. Come on, let's let's be real about the expectations. But with name image likeness endorsement money infiltrating college athletics, um, I'm wondering what's going to happen with expectations when it comes to high-level players, seven-figure recruits, Six-figure recruits. Caleb Williams at USC getting $3.2 million in endorsements. Um, are we going to change the way that we treat players? Are we going to change how we criticize players for media members? Are we going to treat them more like professionals? What are the rules going to be moving forward when it comes to how we sort of uh, frame performance when we look at athletes who may be getting paid in college and paid quite well. 503-417-7575 is the number. Should the name image like this money be public? Alex Molden, former NFL defensive back, told me this morning he thinks this is why NIL money shouldn't be public knowledge. He said that you know the, the more money, the more uh, influence, the more access you're giving people to criticize young players. But is it part of the deal? Should players be held to different standards because they're making six figures, seven figures? Should that NIL money have to be public knowledge? How do you stand on, like, how are we going to treat the high-level college players that maybe didn't get held to the same standard as NFL players once upon a time? Have the game Has the game changed? Have the rules changed when it comes to that? 503-417-7575. I want to hear from you. You've got the home of the truth. Back to the bald face truth with John Canzano on 750 The Game. What is fair criticism when it comes to college athletics, high school athletes, little leaguers, pro athletes? Big difference between how I would treat a professional athlete who makes an error in the field, let's just say in a baseball setting, a uh, Major League Baseball player makes an error. Uh, gets his name in the paper, right? We talk about it. Oh, he made another error. He's struggling defensively. Uh, you go to Little League game, I, I'll tell you, as somebody who's covered Little League games at some of my first stops in this business, um, you know, we never mentioned that Joe McGee, cre- you know, had three errors in the game. We just said the opposing team won the game on an error, and we left Joe McGee's name out of the paper. And that was always done, I think, out of a courtesy, recognizing that, hey, he's 11. He's not making any money out there. But name image likeness has changed the equation. Because I even think college athletes, to some respect, were treated differently than pro athletes by media members. I have noticed in the last couple of years that there's a shift. Maybe it's that the stakes have risen. Maybe it's that there are uh, there's more there's more money involved. 
Maybe it's that name image likeness has created semi-professional and professional athletes. But guys, and Anna, let's kick this around. Are college athletes the same as pro athletes when it comes to criticism these days? Or do we treat them differently? And oh, by the way, should name image likeness money have to be disclosed publicly? Should we know? What, the, what Bo Nix is getting at Oregon and Michael Penix is getting at Washington because now they're a different kind of athlete. Yeah, I think you are on something here because, you know, I don't think they are treated the same. I think they're treated very differently because um, we still view college players as kids, basically, because they are, right? Like 18, 19, 20-year-old kids. That's how they are, and they're not necessarily professional. But now with this NIL world coming about, they're more professional now than they ever have been, and they're fighting to be considered professional athletes and have a job basically at the college. So is it fair to criticize them? I think I think because now that they are getting money, it is a little more fair to criticize them because these people are getting invested in by boosters and by companies and they want to get a return on their investment. You know, you look at uh even USC, Jordan Addison, he you know, he reportedly got, you know, in the millions of dollars and he missed a couple games not playing in the bowl game. I've seen some things on Twitter like there are people are yeah. mad at him because he's not, you know, necessarily earning that money he's made. So it, it's going to get interesting as the NIL keeps going forward and more and more money keeps putting out there. Um I think I would like to, like it to not have the amount of money they're making out there because I think it's just uh would be safer for the kids cuz they are just kids. They're in college. Um they're not true professionals yet. So I don't want to see that out there, but um I can see where a lot of people do because at this point they are more professional than they ever have been. I think it's interesting too. It's sort of uh the was it Arkansas? Was that the university? Yeah. The baseball player? Yeah, we're, ba- he went after the baseball player because the baseball player said we're trying to tune out the outside noise. Yeah. There's a group of bandwagon fans who are negative, and the radio guy went off on him, called him a loser, what rental. Yeah, that's just, that's sort of the new thing that I think we're going to see in addition to the money, you know, when when you have all these guys transferring, getting a better deal somewhere else and you lose that connection. And don't get me wrong, I, th- that those comments and the cut you played, I wouldn't talk about a, a pro team like that exactly. But I think when uh, a lot of fans, super fans, they have a little less connection guy, you know, Keaton Slovis on his fourth team and JT Daniels and all that. I think they feel that it's it's a little bit more of a hired gun mentality yeah. and again it's not some rich owner paying the bills man it's boosters it's super fans so i think when players aren't performing you're going to get extra sort of venom coming their way um i think it's fair obviously i mean it's already happened i mean look at the kind of conversations that we had about Kayvon thibodeau at oregon before he went mm-hmm. off to of the nfl i feel like the the tenor of the conversation the way that we talked about his play was he i mean we were saying things like, was he worth it, right? Yeah. The reported money that he was making uh, by being at Oregon and the sponsorship deals that he got. Um, the part that concerns me, actually, and maybe this is just because we have a college student, and I know what like the mind of a 20-year-old is like. We were all 20 once. Um, I, I, I'm a little bit concerned about like the mental health side of that, the kind of criticism that they will be subjected to, especially by these super fans and boosters who feel like they have invested heavily or just kind of like the public criticism. Like that is a lot I, for anyone. I don't care how thick your skin is. I don't care, you know, what kind of coaching you've gotten about rising above the criticism and tuning out the noise. Like, especially if you're talking about a brain that is not fully developed yet in a 20, young 20-year-old, 19, 18. um, That is concerning to me.
I also I, I think it's understandable that fans would expect more from the players like Michael Penix Jr., Bo Nix, Caleb Williams. They are all at their schools. We all know they're getting NIL money, and it's it, and they're probably making far more money than the average person who's watching the game. So I think there is a temptation from fans or an understandable uh, expectation from fans that these players are going to perform like professionals. So I'm just curious to see how that will manifest itself. And to your point, Anna, I don't think you have to look very far in the entertainment world to find examples of child actors and teen stars and pop stars that got too much fame, too much money, too soon, and it didn't go well. And I wonder if we are creating a generation of athletes that's going to wrestle with that as well. More on the other side of the break. Leave it here. you got the bald-faced truth. B-F-F-T. From the Pac West Center in downtown Portland, presented by High Caliber Millwrights, here's John Canzano with the bald-faced truth. We've been talking a little bit about whether or not NIL deals should be made public. Currently, there's, there is, uh, it, it is not that way in the NCAA. And in fact, the NCAA not supposed to be involved other than sanctioning the idea that you can make NIL money. Um, I think the deals are impacting college athletics immensely. I think they're already impacting high school players as well. Seniors, recruits. We've seen high school players in the state of Oregon who have NIL deals. That's on the table as well. And I think everybody's making good points here. But if we can close the loop on this a little bit, I have noticed, I just have noticed it in the last couple of years. I think people are being more critical of college players. I think they're treating them more like professionals in the criticism of college players. I I guess I had always thought there's a difference. There's a difference in my mind between a... NFL player and a college football player and what I should expect of those two people when they perform. But the, but you're getting a lot of gray area now because some of the players on some of these college teams are competing for college teams that are playing for lucrative berths in the college football playoff. And oh, by the way, they're making several million dollars a year in NIL money. And so I'm a, I don't want to hold them to the same standards that I would hold like a Linfield college football player because it's a different animal. It literally is. And I also think that we got to pump the brakes a little bit and ask ourselves, like, there's part of me that is awfully interested in to know what the all the players are making. I would like to see that. I'd be curious to see it. But I also kind of wonder, is it fair to the players if that money is out there? These are private deals that they've cut with third parties. These are not deals with their respective universities. These are with uh, brands, their sponsorships, their car dealerships, their their coffee companies. Uh, should that be out there and should it be public? I actually don't think that it should be, but eventually it will be because I think the strategy varies from school to school, collective to collective, because I think some collectives are very interested in touting what they're able to offer. Yeah. And that's attractive. That's a recruiting tool. And others, you know, like Oregon's Division Street are super quiet, really quiet, which, um, you know, kind of speaks to just their mentality overall. Like we're elite. We don't need to tout this. We're above we're above it. Right. 
And so it's just, it's fascinating. Um, I know for myself, if like we had, you know, some kid that was uh, even within that world, I, I don't know that I would want that information out there. But. I, I think on one hand, some of the players, though, they like to flaunt it. And sure. their families like to flaunt yes, it. So oh, we got it. We're getting a deal. We're getting this. Look <laughs> at us. You know, uh, but uh, you know, it was interesting because we were at an Oregon State women's basketball game recently, and I talked to one of the players, the star players, for Oregon State, and I I had noticed that there is a Dutch Bros coffee cup on the scorers table for all the games. And I asked her, um, it was Talia, I can't, I'm blanking on her last name, uh, or Talia, uh, I, I'm blanking on her last name, but she scored like 41 points in the game. And I asked her after the game, I said, hey, um, you know, are, do you have a deal with Dutch? And she says, put in a word for me, you know? <laughs> and, and then it, I found out later, Oregon State, like, you know, it's a deal with the Oregon State Athletic Department, not a deal with, like, an individual uh, player. And so... I thought, you know, uh, Talia von Olhoffen. Is that right? Am I getting that right, guys? You guys don't know. Uh, nobody <laughs> knows. Okay. Well, anyway, she's going to be on the show. I told her we're getting her on the show. I better figure out her last name by then. But she's, you know, she scored 41 points in, in a game recently, and she's not getting anything. Like, she's not getting these deals that some of the other players are getting. I would be more inclined to treat her differently. I would treat her as a traditional college athlete. Versus maybe like a player like, um, you know, let's use Bo Nix as an example at Oregon. Mm -hmm. Bo Nix, he's making money. He might be getting seven figures to come back next year. We don't know. I Those two players, should we treat them with the same level of scrutiny? I just, I don't know if that it's a should question. I think that naturally um, the conversations around Bo Nix were already filled with more scrutiny uh, at the beginning of this season when he was flailing a little bit. I think people were that much quicker to criticize him and, and say, well, you know, what what's Oregon paying for here? What's the collective paying for? Yeah, yeah correct. Think, also, yeah. Talia Van Olhoffen. That's right. All right. Talia Van Olhoffen, her dad played in the NFL and, uh, you know, comes from a family that, you know, she obviously had options and she went to Oregon State. But she's not getting a big endorsement deal to go to Oregon State. She's just going out there scoring 40 points, you know, on a given game. She was phenomenal. Made like 18 of 20 shots, scored 40 points. We were there. We watched it. And I talked to her after the game, and I said, you know, do you have a do you have an NIL deal? And she's like, put in a word for me. Mm -hmm. And I was just kind of shocked by that because I would just I would think like a star women's college basketball player should have, you know, a small stable of deals, even though we all know it's not a revenue-generating sport. So I just think there's an interesting, I guess, step back that fans are going to have to deal with. When you're at a game next season and, you know, Oregon or Oregon State or Washington or Utah or USC's quarterback throws an interception, uh, you know, are you going to be more inclined to treat them like Russell Wilson and go, boo! You're making $250 million. Why are you making, you know, or are you going to go, hey, it's just a college kid. He's going to improve. I think we've already shifted. Am I getting any pushback? Like, do you guys agree? Do you think we have shifted? Have we changed the expectations and the level of scrutiny that we give college athletes already? Yeah, I think it's changed. I think it's more of a professional 
way of the way we criticize them now. And I do think it's a little unfair uh, because they're technically not professionals. Like this is not their job, but with all the money coming in, man, it's uh, it's going to get it worse and worse. Like I'm with Peter. I would never, never criticize even a professional athlete, like the way those guys were on their radio shows. But at the same time, like I think it is a little fair to be critical if these guys are making millions of dollars and you are truly invested in the team or you're one of the boosters, like you're going to be upset with your investment that you've made because that's what it is. It's an investment to the program. It's not, you're not giving the kid money because it's necessarily you like the kid. You're doing it because it's going to help out the program and get you farther along. So they're not going to be happy. Yeah. And to Anna, your point, like how different the collectives are division street, Oregon's collective. It's a $500,000 minimum buy-in to make, to be part of division street. Okay. You have to give a half a million dollars to get in the door, and your half a million dollars doesn't get you any say. You get no say. You're just making – you're writing a check at a half a million dollars. Jeez. I have reached out to Division Street multiple times in the last six months. They Crickets. You know, they, they don't want to come on the show. They don't want the publicity. They don't want the scrutiny. They don't want me nosing around, okay? <laughs> Conversely – Arizona State's Sun Angel Collective reached out to me and said, can we be on your show? Mm -hmm. Washington State Cougar Collective, hey, we heard Arizona State was on your show. Can we be on your show? We want to get the word out. Oregon State Damnation Collective, hey, we're putting up a billboard outside Autzen Stadium. We want you to know about it. And, oh, by the way, we'll come on your show. Like, they're looking to for the publicity because they see it as marketing, promotion, additional donations, like, they're looking for $50 donations. They're not looking for a half a million dollars. So I think it's a very different approach. And then, yet again, you've got some other collectives that, you know, we're not even sure what's going on at USC and UCLA. <laughs> like, there are some collectives, but then there's some other things going on where some players have individual representation. And I noticed that Ty Thompson, Oregon's backup quarterback, on his Twitter profile, I looked at it earlier in the show. Just to see, like, had he tweeted anything lately? You know, Bo Nix is coming back. Ty Thompson's got inquiries, and he's got an email address there that is linked to the agency that Robert Griffin III participates in. He's got individual representation. Yeah. A lot of the players Which do. Which makes a lot of sense. Yes. I mean, if this is the world they're going to be in, they should all be hiring their own intelligent, well-connected, high-profile agents to, to navigate that Maybe world. I should be an agent for some of these players and, and not be a radio show host and sports columnist. You know? Feels, like there's, feels like there's an emerging industry here. But I just, I feel for the players on one hand because I think there's wild inconsistency when it comes to these deals. I also think, you know, I agree with Alex Molden. I think the minute we all find out that Michael Penix Jr. is getting a million dollars or Bo Nix getting a million dollars, uh, the guy and his family that are sitting in Section 112 are suddenly going to go, for a million dollars, this is what we're getting? <laughs> you know, like that's part of human nature. Mm -hmm. I mean, we're fighting at Disneyland. You know, the football games are going to be, the football games are going to turn into, you know, it's going to feel like an NFL stadium with people going, you know, why can't we get a upgrade at quarterback and you're a rented player? And I just think we all need to check ourselves a little bit. And on that note, let's go to the five at five. It's the five biggest stories going on in sports. The five at five. Brought to you by Mercedes-Benz of Wilsonville. See more than 4,000 vehicles at Swickert.com. 
Well, the Denver Broncos have fired their coach, but they're standing by their quarterback, Russell Wilson. He's been subpar. Nathaniel Hackett is out. They fired him on Monday. But Russell Wilson getting a vote of confidence from the Broncos owner and general manager saying that they believe in him. I, I think they're stuck with him. They traded five draft picks, including a 2023 first-round pick, and they committed in September to five years and $245 million with Russell Wilson. So in part, I think the Broncos are going, hey, we're standing by you. But I think they're probably whispering to each other going, do we have another choice? Anna, number two. Uh, Coach Deion Sanders saying that baseball was more difficult than football, at least for him. Of course, he would go on to the NFL Hall of Fame. But his baseball career was just solid and nothing special. He told the podcast this week that the ball does some things to you. Any sport where you can fail seven out of ten times and become great and make two to three hundred million dollars, that's a hard sport. I, I think baseball's got some skill involved that, you know, athleticism alone doesn't help you with. I think hitting uh, and hand-eye coordination and hitting is one of those things. But let's make no mistake, Deion Sanders played at a high level uh, in the 90s with the Braves. Peter, can I get an amen? I mean, like, Deion amen. Sanders was lethal. I mean, coming off of Otis Nixon, he needed another speedster, and it didn't hurt that he'd hit 310. Yeah. He had one season in uh, 1992. He had 304 and, uh, you know, stole some bases, 26 stolen bases, and was a pretty good defensive player. But, again, he was a guy who, you know, normally – hit down in the order and, you know, uh, played some center field or hit leadoff and played some center field. And uh, I think he was a pretty good player in Major League Baseball. But it speaks a lot about his athleticism that he could play at that level and say, hey, that was really hard because he made football look so easy. And we're never going to see that again, are we? I think it's be hard. we'd be hard-pressed. Bo Jackson, Deion Sanders, hard-pressed because I think it would take – you know, it would almost take a player being so good saying, uh, I will sign with you, but I'm also going to play this other sport. But the, I just think we're not raising players like that anymore. We're not raising diverse athletes because kids are being asked to specialize in the fifth grade and pick a sport. It'll be what Tom Brady does after his broadcasting career. Tom Brady <laughs> pitching for somebody. Pickleball. <laughs> Pickleball. <laughs> Number three in our five at five, J.J. Watt announced that this will be his final NFL season. He's with the Arizona Cardinals. He's got two games left. He announced on Twitter this morning that he had played his final home game. Now, he's been in Arizona just for a couple seasons. Before that, he was with the Houston Texans. So I think maybe there was probably some part of J.J. Watt that wasn't as nostalgic about saying goodbye to the Arizona fans as maybe he was saying goodbye to the Houston Texan fans. But still, this is a guy that played at a high level and should be a first ballot Hall of Famer. J.J. Watt announcing that he has two games left in his NFL career. Both road games, final game of the season for him will be at San Francisco. Anna, number four. All right, so Corey Humans. This is the 35-year-old guy from Dallas who caught Aaron Judge's 62nd home run at Globe Life Field back on October 4th. He is defending the mere $1.5 million that he got for selling that baseball. He's saying that he came from a humble life. He's a cancer survivor. He met his wife, Bree, who... A lot of us probably know from her days when she was what a Blazers broadcaster, courtside reporter. She was with uh, she and she covered the Ducks as well. Yeah, 
so that happens to be his wife, uh, if you pay attention to Portland sports. But so he met her at an outdoor arts fair, paid his way through college, and he's just saying that he did not take on some sketchy offers that he got for this artifact, this baseball, everything from Ferraris offered to him via DM to suitcases full of cash. He's saying he's got peace of mind with the one and a half million dollars that he Did got he make for a mistake? through auction. Did he make a mistake? Because he was originally offered three million for the mm-hmm. ball and said, I'll go through with this, you know. And he comes from the financial world. Yes. So he's no dummy. Right. You know? He's just saying no matter what he did, everyone would say that it was the wrong thing. If he gave it back, he was stupid. If he sold it for too high a price, he was greedy. He's a private person that essentially won the lottery live on national TV. I think we need to get him on the show. It sounds fascinating. I think we need to get him on the show and talk about it. But I, I don't know. I mean, he got a million and a half dollars. Yeah. Went to a baseball game. He got a hot dog. He got a beer. And he got a million and a half dollars. It's hard to argue with that not being a successful day at the ballpark. Finally, let's talk about old people. Left-handed pitcher Rich Hill has agreed to a one-year contract with the Pittsburgh Pirates. This will be his 12th big league team, and he will be the oldest player in Major League Baseball this season. Turns 43 in March and has carved out a role as a middle reliever, but Pending a physical, if this old guy can get through the physical, he'll be on a roster filled with a bunch of young pitchers in Pittsburgh. But really, a bit of a surprise. Be in 18 seasons, Hill is 82 and 59 with a 3.85 ERA. Pitched 1,259 innings. A lot of people thought he would not play. It was with the Red Sox and the Yankees. Or excuse me, in the Mets, uh, in Tampa before that, but. He's coming back for another year. Pirates giving him one year, eight million bucks. Forty-two-year-old left-hander Rich Hill will be the oldest player in Major League Baseball next season. How about them apples? He didn't catch a home run ball, but he got eight million bucks. No matter what I was gonna do, it would be the wrong decision, said Rich Hill. <laughs> if I quit, people say you left money on the table. That's the five at five. Five biggest stories going on in sports um all right coming up we have so much to talk about i have so many things we need to catch up on including these bowl games that are still ahead i'm 2-0 and against the spread in my bowl game picks i'm picking about 80 percent of the winners outright i'm trending towards almost 60 percent against the spread if i can finish these final pac-12 five pac-12 bowl games coming up in the next six or seven days uh, I'm trying to uh, go undefeated in bowl season. I'll tell you my picks. Steven and Peter and I are going to kick that around coming up. you got the BFT statewide. Back to the bald-faced truth with John Canzano on 750 The Game. Be interesting to see uh, this week what happens with the Pac-12 bowl games. By the way, tomorrow on the show, Big Dave coming on. Dave Uiangalele uh, is coming on. 
I'm going to ask him for the pronunciation so we can get Big Dave saying it. Uh, Lele. Uh, Friday, Kenny Dillingham, Arizona State head football coach on the BFT on Friday. So uh, Wednesday, we got Big Dave. Friday, we got Kenny Dillingham. Bowl games going on like crazy this week that I want to talk about. Uh, every time I toot my horn about my picks, I go into a slump. But yet here I am tooting my horn. My overall record against the spread this season, I'm 51 and 38. That is 57% this season. Bowl games, I'm 2 0. Straight up this season, I'm 70 and 19. That's 79% on the straight up record this season. So I want to throw that out. But guys, let's talk about these bowl games. Oregon Ducks playing North Carolina. This is tomorrow. Wednesday, 5 o'clock on Fox, Holiday Bowl. Bo Nix will play. Whisper is that he's going to be close to healthy. I like Oregon in the game, but the point spread has fluctuated between Oregon minus 13, minus 14. It's currently sitting at 13. I don't like the Ducks to cover the spread. I think even though North Carolina does not have 75% of its starting defensive backfield, even though they have no pass rush, uh, bunch of opt-outs. I look over at Oregon, and I don't like Oregon's defense. No D.J. Johnson, no Noah Sewell, no Christian Gonzalez. Uh, I think there's going to be a whole bunch of points, and I think North Carolina can score about 34, 35 points in this game. So I have Oregon winning comfortably. I have it 42-34, but I don't think they cover the, the 13 or 14. What do you think? I agree with you, John. You know The North Carolina defense has been terrible all season, and they're going to be missing guys but at the same time, they were terrible, so they're missing again. How much worse can it really get, right? Like, can it get any worse? I don't think so. And it's the same thing with Oregon, right? Oregon's defense wasn't very good, and all their best players will be gone as well. So I, I think it's a high-scoring game, but I do think North Carolina with Drake May, uh, you know, one of the better quarterbacks in the nation as only a freshman, I think he's going to be able to make a lot of plays. I think Oregon wins, but I think Carolina keeps it close, and uh, Oregon wins by seven. Peter Sampson, how do you see it? Oh, he's on the phone. Peter Sampson's on the phone. All right, let's go to the next game. Let's go to the Alamo Bowl on Thursday. And by the way, back to the Oregon game real quick. Oregon had a great signing day. The early signing period went well for Dan Lanning. Um, that's great for Oregon. But is it bad, Stephen, that I'm looking at the early signing period and I'm going, Oregon was really invested with their time, effort, energy. Dan Lanning smoking a cigar at the end of that thing. Hey, it went so well for him. Uh, I kind of wonder it, how serious they gonna, they're going to take the Holiday Bowl, yeah, especially without an offensive coordinator. kind of feels like a game that means something to them, but not everything to them. And we all know that bowl games are about who wants to be there. Yeah, in North Carolina, they're missing their offensive coordinator as well. I was going to ask you about that. Yeah. Um, you know, is that I think it's I think it does matter a little bit, right? I think you know you have so much familiarity with Kenny Dillingham and how that offense was run. And we saw against Oregon State in the Civil War game, like Oregon wasn't necessarily on their A game. And now, it, you know, it kind of seems like Dillingham wasn't 100% focused on that game. So at this point, you know, Ken, or uh, Dan Lanning out there recruiting, like you said, smoking the cigar, yep. which was cool. It was a cool video. I, I have to admit it was pretty awesome. Uh, you know, are they 100% focused? It. But yeah. I, I, think it's, I think it's a real thing. And I think it's a, it's a question for both teams. Uh, I just worry about that when you're giving up 13 points on the spread. Like, I'm not going to take yep. a team that seems not 100% focused. Uh, conversely, Washington plays Texas in the Alamo Bowl on Thursday, 6 o'clock on ESPN. I left the regular season thinking Washington 
in the last couple weeks of the season could have and would have beat anyone in the conference and maybe anyone outside the top four in the playoff rankings. Like, I think they were outside of, you know, the Ohio State, Georgia, Michigan, TCU bunch. I think Washington was playing the best football. They were that impressive down the stretch. They're playing for an 11-win season. Michael Penix Jr. will be there. He was locked in at the end of the year. And Washington gets a date with Steve Sarkeesian, their old friend. Now, Sark's going to be shorthanded. Doesn't have his running backs. His two running backs that combined for 23 touchdowns will not play in this game. I like Washington as an underdog in the Alamo Bowl to win the game outright. I think they win it 41-35. They're getting four and a half points, so I'm all over this. Washington wins the game and covers, obviously. I disagree with you on this one. I think uh, I think Texas gets the job done and they cover the spread. I think that Washington defense, there are some holes in it. And Quinn Ewers, he has a lot to prove because with Arch Manning coming in next season, this may be his final opportunity to really say, you know what, I should be the starting quarterback here at the University of Texas, not Arch Manning. I think he's going to have a big game, and uh, Texas wins by seven, uh, seven points. Texas getting the uh, home draw there in that game, but I still like Washington. Uh, Friday, 11 a.m. on CBS, UCLA and Pitt. I had a hard time handicapping this game. Pitt does not have Keaton Slovis at quarterback, obviously. He's transferred. UCLA, meanwhile, has been terribly distracted at the end of the season. They lost two of the final three games. And even the, the win, their regular season finale against Cal, it didn't have polish. Who wants to be in El Paso? I'm asking. Because if you can answer that, you can tell me who's going to win this game. Does Pitt want to be there? Does UCLA want to be there? For, for that reason, I'm going to steer clear. I, like, I would steer clear betting this game. But. UCLA is favored in this game, and so, you know, with that caveat, I guess what I would say is if you're going to bet in this game, uh, UCLA started off as a a 6.5-point favorite. It's been bet down to 5.5. I still like UCLA to win, but I think they win ugly. I think it's like 30-28. to Not happy, but they walk off a winner. Uh, I'll take UCLA reluctantly in this game, but I don't think they cover. I'll take UCLA to cover. I, you know, by all reports, it seems like all most of the guys are going to play. Uh, Dorian Thompson Robinson should play. Charbonnet should play at running back. Bobo should play uh, on for UCLA as well. I think the offense full strength. It is a question of do you want to be in El Paso and UCLA? They were shooting for a higher a higher bowl game. They're shooting for the Pac-12 title game. It didn't happen. But I just think it's, this would be a nice cap to the season. Uh, for Chip Kelly and, and a lot of these guys like DTR, like he was the guy that really you know helped Chip Kelly get along the way. So I think this would be a nice cap for them. And I don't buy uh, Pittsburgh at all really to be a great team. So I'm going to take uh, UCLA and I think they cover. The Bruins may benefit from having some time off in this game because I think, you know, we watched them lose to Arizona. We watched them lose to USC. They were unimpressive in beating Cal in the finale. They just look like a team that was looking into the off season already. And maybe the time off is refocused them, and they're going to have some fun in this game. I think that's the only, the, the only hope I could have of that being a really good game. Meanwhile, let's go to the Cotton Bowl. January 2nd, Monday, 10 a.m. on ESPN. I don't think US, USC is thrilled to be in this game with Tulane. They were trying to get to the playoff. They wanted to play Georgia in the semifinal. They lost to Utah in the Pac-12 title game. Meanwhile, you got Tulane from the American Athletic Conference – They've got Ty J. Spears at running back, seven straight 100-yard rushing games. USC's run defense, not very good. 
But I just think the biggest factor in this game relates to how badly Tulane would love to beat a Power 5 opponent with a brand name. It's a statement game for Tulane. Lincoln Riley, USC coach, 1-3 and three in bowl games. He will have Caleb Williams. Williams said the hamstring's doing well. But I like Tulane to win this game outright. They're an underdog in the game. I think they will cover. I think Tulane's going to beat USC in the Cotton Bowl. I don't think USC, I don't think it derails them. I don't think it matters that much to them. But USC was originally a two-and-a-half point favorite in this game. It's now down to one-and-a-half. I like Tulane to win it. I think it's something like 42-38 over USC. I agree with you. I think this is a game where Tulane gets the job done. We've seen this happen in these type of games where, you know, a team like USC, they're shooting for the college football playoff. They lose and a lot of it could be said, well, if Caleb Williams stays healthy, they're going to the college football playoff, but he doesn't, and now they're disappointed at where they're at. And Tulane wins the American Athletic, has a great season. Uh, the coach has already said he's coming back for the next for one more year after this. So you know, they got a lot of momentum going for him to be a nice cap off this season. I don't think there's any motivation for USC to come out and be excited about this game when they had much bigger thoughts. So I think Tulane comes out, and I do think they get the win. It reminds me a little bit of Washington State, Fresno State in the L.A. Bowl. Like, Fresno State showed up to play. They were playing for something. It meant something to them. And Washington State, I don't think it did. I kind of feel that way about the Cotton Bowl in USC. It just doesn't have the allure of the playoff to it. And I think there'll be a little bit of a slump there from USC. Utah is playing Penn State in the Rose Bowl, Monday, January 2nd, 2 o'clock ESPN. Penn State, I uh, pointed this out earlier when we were talking to Josh Newman. They've only lost two games this season. They lost to Michigan. They lost to Ohio State. Those are good losses, but they don't have a win over a ranked opponent. Utah's not only ranked in the top ten, but Utah, this game means something to the Utes. Best run defense in the Pac-12. Wanted so badly to repeat in the Rose Bowl that they played out of their minds in the Pac-12 championship game. They had unfinished business. Cam Rising's going to play, and he's there. I think Utah closes the loop in Pasadena. I think they win the game. I think they cover the two-and-a-half-point spread. I think it's going to be a great game, but I like Utah 34, Penn State 31. I uh, am not disagree with you on this one. I think Penn State gets the job done and gets the win outright. The Penn State defense, I, they haven't played anybody very good this year, but their pass defense especially has been really good in the nation. Uh, yards per game opponents uh, per pass, fifth in the nation. I think Cam Rising is going to have a little bit of trouble, and we've seen all the injuries they've had at running back and the struggle they've had just throwing guys out there. Is it going to work against a team that is known for their defense? USC, not known for their defense. They still use it. It was fine for Utah, but now Penn State comes in, a much better defense, a team that's focused on that side of the ball. I think Penn State can stop Utah enough. Uh, they got a veteran, Sean Clifford, at quarterback. I think Penn State gets the win. It should be a fun bowl season. I'm looking to uh, close the loop here, but I need uh, I need Oregon in this holiday bowl to get the win. I think, uh, you know, and looking forward, uh, we disagree on Washington and Texas. That'll be interesting on Thursday. And we disagree about UCLA uh, in the Alamo Bowl. So that'll be, I mean, excuse me, UCLA uh, in El Paso in the Sun Bowl. We'll see what happens there. I want you to leave it here. Tweet your picks at me, at John Canzano BFT. Back to the bald-faced truth with John Canzano on 750 The Game. Well, the Trailblazers uh, did some nice things. Uh, had a ceremony to honor Damian Lillard and 
the fact that he is now in franchise history, the all-time leading scorer. Um, you guys hear Lillard's comments as he uh, talked about the, uh, the the journey that he took in getting getting to Portland uh, and and getting through this. I did, yeah, and I mean, it just goes with everything that Dame has said before, right? Like, it's just, you know, an unselfish guy. He, you know, he didn't come up with the best best of childhood, but he, you know, he takes that and he runs with it, and he, he applies it to what he does now, which, you know, I think represents just, you know, the Portland Trailblazer fan base just greatly in general. I'm going to play this cut from the post game. But I still was just sitting there like, <laughs> like, all right, man, let's hurry up and just get this over with. Um but I, I mean, I don't, I really don't know how to explain it. I think I've, I've been that way my entire life. I think uh, when I was up there, I mentioned how I really grew up with a lot of, a lot of cousins, man. Like, just literally like 25 people, you know, during the summer at my grandparents' house, you know, all day. We went to the park for free lunch and we rode bikes together and, you know, we would play football then play basketball and then you know we just did everything together so I come from uh, that type of environment where you know it's never about you um, you know you look after people you have people's back um, you know you just don't search for attention you know you don't make things about yourself and that's I think when you come from that it just makes it kind of weird when everybody's focused on you Damian Lillard talking about setting the record, his mindset. Uh, he was given a standing ovation in the first quarter against the Hornets. And then after the game, they kind of did a photo op and a post-game ceremony. And, um, you know, it was interesting to see that, you know, there was some criticism for Clyde Drexler. And Lillard passed Drexler a week ago on the road at Oklahoma City. And... Um, you know, the Thunder informed the crowd, you know, the Th Thunder's PA announcer informed the crowd that he had passed Drexler and they gave him an ovation. And um, I don't, I think we asked too much of Clyde Drexler. Like, I get it. He, you know, he left Portland. He went to Houston. So did a lot of other players who leave markets. But I also think Clyde, you know, has been a reluctant superstar by NBA standards. I've invited Clyde on the show. He has declined to come on. We, you know, he's one guy that I would love to get on. Haven't had him on the show. And I've talked to him, but not on radio. And I just think, like, he just isn't interested in participating in that stuff. Do you guys think Clyde Drexler should have, you know, filmed a video uh, and been there? You know, his son was on Twitter saying... You know, he did better than filming a video. He called Lillard, he called Chauncey Billups directly and congratulated them after Lillard passed him. Are we asking too much of Clyde? Uh, I think we are. And I'm not surprised that this is uh, kind of a hot-button topic today. Steven and I talked about this last week on the show, and I said some fans, man, they really, really have a problem with the way Clyde left, and I get it. You know, I mean, look, he was a trendsetter. He forced his way to a specific team before that was hip. But, I mean... If he call if he hadn't done anything, it still it doesn't matter per se, but it's a good look to do that. But that he called them directly, and I guess the idea was, look, I don't want to make this about me. You pass it. I think that is doing it one better. So I get 
why Portland fan feels jilted. It goes back to that kind of small market mentality, and you don't necessarily love that, but look, a lot of fans in this market do have that mentality, but ultimately, like... Who cares? Who cares? He called them. It was great. Enjoy the videos. I mean, Terry Stotts did a video. They fired him 18 months ago. So enjoy that. Don't get mad that Clyde did it privately and just move on. I agree with Peter 100%. I think it's uh, I think it's pretty silly that people are getting mad at Clyde for not putting a video out. But yet he called him personally. Like, I think it's more important that he called him personally and congratulated him. Like, I would rather I, – I, I compare this to, like, you know, a birthday for my friend. Like, I – yeah, I can post something on Twitter or Instagram or whatever saying happy birthday to my friend, or I can just text them myself or call them. And I think that's more sincere than just making a public thing. Like, we're so in love with just the public just announcement of how much we like things. I, I think it's a little over the top. And I also think it's crazy to think now people are saying, you know, whether you think Dame is the best Blazer or Clyde is, you can argue on the court. But now people are saying because Clyde didn't put out a video that <laughs> that's, that's he's silly. not like that's he absurd. can't be considered the goat. Like that is insane to me that you that has gone that far. Like you can argue on the court, that's fine. I think Clyde's the best Blazer ever, but I think Dame could pass him. But because he didn't make a video, like that's just I think that's silly. I think Pierre's right, small market type of thing. And I think we just need to you know not be so you know take everything so personally if they don't put out a video for him. Uh, Damian Lillard played in a plays in a different NBA than Clyde Drexler or or Bill Walton played in, and he plays in a you know and I think the standard for me is always going to involve who took the team to the highest possible level. I have a lot of empathy for what Damian Lillard's doing because I look at him and I go, hey, you know that can't be easy to be in a small market in today's NBA world where you're just not going to attract star free agents. You're going to struggle uh, because you don't have enough around you. And you're going to be hamstrung by what the Blazers organization and Neil Olshay put around him. It's a shame. But I look at what Clyde Drexler did in, in taking the Blazers to the finals and being regulars around the Western Conference finals during his, you know, his run. And I think that you got to acknowledge that you know while Clyde Drexler had more around him, he was competing at a higher level in a different NBA. And, oh, by the way, I think he would, if he'd known that, you know, if he played in today's NBA, how many more points would Clyde Drexler have? So I'm going to put Drexler in front of Lillard, but I'm also going to give Drexler the pass on if he, if I have a choice between somebody giving a heartfelt private conversation phone call or a public video, those people out there that are mad at Clyde for not making the public video are mad because he didn't validate them as a fan base. And I don't think the intention from Clyde Drexler was to do anything more than to congratulate Damian Lillard for passing him. I don't think Roger Maris Jr. needed to be there when Aaron Judge hit the home run, but good on him for being there. But if he wasn't there, a private phone call to Aaron Judge would have been just as good because the rest of that, I think, was just a show for television cameras and for the rest of people. So I'm with you guys on this, and if you're out there and you're struggling with Clyde, look, we can say a lot of bad things about Clyde. Like, when he came back as a college coach, he wasn't into it, okay? He didn't have the energy or the focus or the passion to go out and recruit. He was more interested in playing golf. You can criticize him for that. But don't criticize Clyde Drexler because he left Portland, like so many other players have left, including some other players that, that Blazer fans uh, hold up as great examples that didn't finish their career as Blazers. Uh, you know, let's look at Bill Walton. 
Uh, let's look at uh, you know some some other players in Blazers history that we all regard as great players. You look at you know Kevin Duckworth. You look at Jerome Kersey, and you know look appreciate them for the time that they spent in uniform in front of you. But let's not criticize Clyde Drexler for not pulling his phone out and recording a video that would have been more for fans than it would have been for Damian Lillard or Chauncey Billups, which he you know he called those guys directly. Uh, I don't want to say I'm giving him a pass. I just think he, he did the right thing there. Leave it here. You got the BFT. You've got the home of the truth. Back to the bald face truth with John Canzano on 750 The Game. What do we have coming up top of the hour in Portland on 750 The Game, guys? We've got the pulse with Peter Sampson. Speaking of that, Peter Sampson, what's on the pulse? What are you going to talk about? Yeah, I do want to tie a, tie a bow on this Dame versus Drexler thing. I mean, some of the reaction has been ridiculous. Uh, we're gonna Nathaniel Hackett. How much is he actually to blame in Denver? And uh, tis the season for anonymous sources uh, as we approach the NBA tra- trade deadline. Just a reminder to ignore about ninety five percent of that. All right. So, how do you know? with an NBA trade, whether there's something real to the smoke. What's the, what are the signs you, things you look for in knowing that there's something real happening? Uh, a big one is, it's first it's the outlet, right? If it's you know some random online outlet that you don't necessarily know. But they'll have, say, a Western Conference executive says, well, that could be anyone with any team. And they're just spitballing out there. But because it's uh, a Western, you know, and my man Sean Hyken it always points this out, well, automatically because they work for a team, that is NBA sources and insiders said. And those things gain traction like crazy. It's literally just some guy on the phone just sort of spitballing yeah and i think you got to be careful with that kind of stuff and as far as the dame versus drexler thing has lillard at any point said that he needed more or wanted more from drexler i don't hear that from him no not at all not at all i I completely agree with you guys i'm sure dame appreciated the the call more than the video i'm sure he loved the video it's great so many awesome players and and coaches were part of that and uh i'm a little bit different than you guys like personally i think dame has past Clyde just a little bit as far as greatest blazer ever, but still, like, give me a break. That's really cool that, you know, the former record holder took time out and got his number, reached out, and congratulated him. Would you trade, uh, do you think Lillard would trade all the points to have played a lesser role in a team that won more? Yes. Yes, absolutely I do. He he would give it all up for, I'm not even going to say a championship, but just to get to the finals, just to get a chance. I don't think he's going to have a shot to win a title in Portland. Are, are people going to be mad at him if he's somewhere else two years from now, a season from now, two seasons from now, playing in a different uniform, just like Clyde did? Will he be uh, regarded as a traitor? Possibly. And that's why I don't think he's going to do it. I think I think he's going to uh, go down swinging in Portland, and you know he'll have 61 million reasons a year why that th- that's a good decision. He set <laughs> down roots, but I think he's going to give it his best shot. I certainly think he has. I don't know that he has the front office to do it, but I think he has a more uh, cognizant front office when it comes to the realities of the uh, NBA landscape. Uh, but I think if he did go that route, you know, when when you brand yourself, it's all about loyalty for a decade, more than a decade. It's tough to kind of cross and, and walk that back. And we saw him kind of testing the waters, allegedly, uh, a year and a half ago. And I, I think he kind of realized, like, just look, for better or worse, this is where I'm going to be. 
he bought a five-acre parcel of land out in Westland and Stafford neighborhood, and I just happened to know his neighbor, okay? I'm friends with his neighbor and uh, texted with his neighbor earlier today, in fact, because his neighbor's in Disneyland with these, the guy that has the nine kids that I was talking about earlier. And so I was out at the neighbor's property because they were having a little family get-together, and I couldn't help but notice as I drive down this road uh, on Stafford Road into this neighborhood that includes Lillard, my friend, and a couple other people, that Lillard's property backs up to my friend's property. And Damian Lillard is building a massive gymnasium, and it looks like some kind of recording studio on the property. Now, it's out in the country. It's a little out of place, but it's his property. He's free to do whatever he wants. But I, I was struck when I saw it, guys, and I'm not totally comfortable, like, tweeting out a photograph of his house and all that stuff because I did take a picture of the gym. It's a massive gymnasium, like to the point where, like, I think it's bigger than the Blazers practice facility, the overall footprint of this gym that is going in on this five-acre piece of land. And, and in fact, before Lillard bought it, bought the property, I looked at it because I was just curious. It was next to my, my friend's house, and he, go, oh, that, he goes, move in there. That place is for sale. Well, you know, it wasn't. It wasn't all that expensive, but it was pricey. But Damian Lillard has turned it into the kind of place that he could never sell. Like, you know, we have seen this happen with NBA players over the years who come to Portland. They buy or they build a giant mega house, and then they have trouble selling it, uh, and they're stuck trying to sell it to another NBA player. I think Damian Lillard's going to stay living here for the foreseeable future. He's not going to be able to unload that property. It looks like he's moving in for the long term. I am certain that his kids are going to grow up in this area and play in that gymnasium, but I am I'm I'm going to say TBD on whether or not Lillard finishes his career as a Blazer because if he really wants to win a championship, I think he's got to go somewhere else to get it. Stephen, break the tie. I agree with you, John. I think he's going to have to leave if he wants to win a championship. Um, I also don't know necessarily with like Peter said, he thinks he would trade it all for a championship. I mean, he runs the Blazer franchise, and he's loved by the Blazers. I think if he is to leave, I don't think anyone's going to blame him. I think he's at that point where he is so loved by Blazer fans that no one's going to blame him for leaving. So I don't know that he would necessarily, um, you know, trade it all for that because he, like, he is the face of the Trailblazers. So I think it's really high up. But um, I think he has to leave if he wants to get a championship. There you go. Uh, you tell us at John Canzano BFT. Tweet at me. Leave it here as Peter Sampson and the Pulse are coming up. In just a couple of minutes, you can just leave it locked in for Peter. We're back tomorrow. We got Big Dave on the show. DJ, uh, it, the new quarterback at Oregon State, who who it was, uh, Uyangalele is going. His father is coming on the show tomorrow. Kenny Dillingham on Friday, the new Arizona State head football coach. So many questions to answer. Bowl game still ahead. You got the BFT.